Welcome to episode 94 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined once again by Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you as well, Mr. Rothenberg. How are you? Are you feeling cheery or, or scroogey this time of year? Uh, I'm cheery. I'm cheery. Getting good rest, you know, not living out of a suitcase, that sort of stuff. Have family in town, so I can't uh, I can't complain. It's been very wet here in California, but that's actually a good thing because we're in the midst of like a three-year drought. So, yeah, all in all, what's to complain about? Yeah, explain to me briefly, before we get into the meat of this show, why there was a catastrophic weather event named after a stoner movie. <laughs> Apparently, yeah, so there was this huge storm going into the Bay Area last year, or California. Um, it was called Pineapple Express, apparently. And that is actually the name of the weather movement. It's not like something that got made up. It's not like a, it's not like a hurricane. It's not uh-huh. like they like pick the name of it like out of a hat. Like, this is what the thing is called. Okay. It's like yeah. an El Nino. Yeah. And okay. yeah, exactly. And I think that like the Pineapple Express, like the, like the marijuana, like gets its name from this weather pattern. But okay. I don't know the details of that for, I don't know. I don't want to say obvious reasons, but for many reasons, I don't know the details of that. Yeah. But yeah, so there you go. But I just thought it was so California that like, of course, like the first like storm apocalypse that we get and it's named after a Judd Apatow stoner movie. It's been it's been kind of a rough <laughs> month for James Franco, I guess. <laughs> Flacco! My Flacco. boy, my bro. Did oh. you run your name through the slate Obama name generator? Okay. It's I think I haven't, but I'm guessing it gives you a quarterback's name, right? Yeah. Or yeah, so the, I, think like. I think we know who I'm gonna I think we know who I'm gonna get. All right. You are basically Ben Roethlisberger. I saw I see what you were going for there. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't done that. I did do like the ones they had before with like what's her name? Adina yeah, Menzel. Adina Menzel, yeah. Yeah, when the Travolta, which was much more butchered. This one was kind of that's the pr- I mean, Obama got like one sort of syllable wrong in this name. It was pretty close. And Flacco he, Franco, pretty close. You could have slurred and it could have just come out as flat you know, like yeah. James Flanco. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't enunciate yeah. all the time. I know he was I'm, up there talking for so long. I mean, I get one really, syllable yeah, wrong, give him exactly. a break. He's like, seriously, I'm talking about hacked Hollywood emails, you guys. Like, I have shit to do. Like, I, <laughs> I don't yeah. really, I don't have time to get people's names right. So, sorry, James Franco, but deal with it. And Joe I, Flacco, I guess. I don't know. Imagine if we had to deal with North Korean hackers on No Challenges Remaining, Courtney. <laughs> <laughs> I often actually think about this, like... What, you do. Yeah, no, 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 not this, but like the whole concept, especially, you know, like with all of the Sony executive emails getting hacked. And I was a lawyer and I used to review documents, like corporate documents. And, yeah. e- and you get a lot of personal email, obviously, because uh-huh. everybody who works in a company, you know that you use your pers- your work account for personal emails as well. Yeah, I would just have to sit there and read through these incredible six month chains of like, you know, yeah, just crazy stuff. And, you know, have to throw that stuff in people's faces. And you do kind of become sympathetic to people because you're like, you know, we all know we say really, really terrible things in private. Oh, yeah. But you say them in context of the friendships that you have and the people that you know and, you know, a a certain sense of humor and things like that. So it makes sense. But, yeah, so I feel bad. I I, I do. And I'm not really even 
someone who's sympathetic to Hollywood in any way, shape, or form. But just from a human level, I'm like, I know I say things that, like, if that was plastered up on a wall and no one knew who I was and what my character was or who my friends were, they'd be like, oh, my gosh, you're a terrible human being. And right. I'd be like, you know what? I You're wrong, but you're right. Like, you, you have that piece of paper. But, yeah. yeah, so I feel bad for them. I do feel bad, too. I mean, getting your email, all of your correspondence, that's – I wish that on nobody. <laughs> yeah. But I just also at the same time feel bad for the people who have to sit in a room and like review it all. That's well, it those are be, the yeah. But those are but in this case, those are the the hackers, hack, the criminals. So yeah. I don't feel bad for them for, well, for, giving, for giving themselves busy work. You don't know they could have outsourced them to contract attorneys. <laughs> <laughs> Stimulating the economy. Yeah, exactly. So there you go. On this show, we won't be outsourcing anything. We're doing it all ourselves. We're going to talk about the, some of the prize money increases that have happened recently. We're going to talk about. Some Hall of Fame criteria based off of a uh, column for Rolling Stone that Greg Couch wrote recently and also our own sort of Hall of Fame weighing that we did recently because the votes were due in December. And then we're going to take a number holiday remix style. And lastly, you want to keep making remix noises. That's cool. Remix. Yeah, I feel like, yeah. I miss Missy Elliott, by the way. I feel like she just wanted to use to shout that a lot. Oh, man. Yes. Missy, my girl. So my goal for 2015 is to get Missy Elliott back. To bring and, Missy like, back. Not, I'm going to say, like, I can't, I don't have the power to do that, but <laughs> I hope that she does it for herself. Fair. I hope Missy self-actualizes my goal. And then we're going to end the show. And then after the outro, we're going to do a special discussion of Serial, the podcast, podcast about podcast. Meta, meta, meta. We can make it a podcast about the Slate spoiler special, which would be like, triple meta that would be super, but yeah yeah that's too much but we're gonna do that after the after the outro and demarcated so those of you who don't want to hear that at all or yet because you're listening uh know how to avoid it so let's get on with the show there hasn't been much news in december which is the way we like it but some of the news that did happen was prize money increase that happened at the top level of the main tour uh, outside the slams, which is the ATA Masters events, and they negotiated with the tournaments, the player size and the tournament side negotiated a 14% increase annually for each of the four years at the Masters events. That is being disputed now by the tournaments, which is a whole different mess. And then also, more recently, the ITF uh, Pro Circuit proposed an increase uh, at the lowest levels of the sport. Uh, the tournaments where the total prize pool is 10,000, 15,000. And then for the women's, also 25, 50, 75, and 100. Courtney, let's start with the, the ATP Masters stuff because that's the bigger stuff to the part of the tour that we look at more often. Uh, what does this increase tell you about the state of the men's game? And is this a, is this a good thing for the sport, for this for the rich to get richer, so to speak, which is, a lot, which is what a lot of people are calling it, that the... You know, the top guys are now the ones getting this big increase, which is against the grain of a lot of the early round loser increases that have been the focus of the slams in the past uh, few years. I'm all for tennis players making more money, like, mm-hmm. as a whole. That's great. Like, you know, get paid, get yours. Um, I think when I saw this announcement and, and the numbers behind it, and the first thing that came to mind was just that this is almost like a big four legacy package, okay. effectively, that... You know, uh, yeah, it's it's annual increases at the Masters over the next, I think, four years, four or five years. And within that time, you know, the people who drive 
the product, the reason why the ATP Masters 1000s are so valuable right now is because they're mandatory, right? Mandatory yeah. tournaments means that you are going to guaranteed, barring injury or in certain minimal other situations, you're going to get your Roger Federer, you're going to get your Rafael Nadal, you're going to get Andy Murray, uh, Novak Djokovic, top 10. It's mandatory. Everybody's, all together, too. Yeah, all them together. Awesome. Generally, with especially the way the big four play, you get like these blockbuster finals, et cetera, et cetera. People pay their tickets. They want to see it. Television will pay big money for contracts because they want to air it. On the whole, everybody's interested. Now, you lock in these these uh, prize money increases. You're going to play these, pay these players more, and you're going to set a new ceiling. In 2018, right, the ceiling for what is – or sorry, not the ceiling, but the, the, the baseline for what is a prize money pack purse – at the Masters 1000s is significantly larger than as it is now. The yeah. state of the game, though, the ATP specifically, in 2018, may be looking vastly different than right. it does right now. And I mean that when and if a Roger Federer retires in the next four years, a Nadal, even a, a Djokovic or a Murray, you know, kind of theoretically... over 30 by yeah, then, yeah, theoretically moving out of their their prime years, you know, et cetera. But at the end of the day, time moves on. I mean, they, you would think they wouldn't be as good then as they are now. Um, that will affect the health of the game and where the, the game sits in a few years. And so then, if at that point, the group that you have behind them who become the quote-unquote stars of the ATP, if they can't drive ticket sales, um, television contracts, interest, sponsorship, et cetera, et cetera, you have a tour that is incredibly leveraged um, because you have these Masters tournaments who are paying far, being f compelled under their sanctions, under their contracts, to be paying the players far more than they deserve. Yeah. And that is really my concern from a health of the sport perspective. Like, I don't care that if the Masters want to make more money, that's great. But I don't, I think we've talked, this has always obviously not just been a theme on NCR, but it's been a theme generally speaking everywhere, which is what does the ATP look like after this golden era ends? And if it reverts to something that is, you know, less than, which it will be because that's why it's a golden era, <laughs> it ends <laughs> at some point, you know, like there's the rest of it. Um, that's going to be a really big problem. And, and you wonder how that's going to affect the health of the tournaments and the tour. Yeah, if it's just get if they're growing faster than they'll be able to support in the future. And I don't think that I think for right now, this increase does reflect the current growth rate of the sport. So I do I don't think it was at all unfair. The players went in with studies they had commissioned from consultant firms and researchers, whatever else, which said based on pure revenues of the tournament, they thought it deserved seventeen percent. Uh, the master started off with a considerable low ball of five percent. And the actual result was nowhere near the middle of that. It was much closer to the players at 14. Um, so they definitely won this side of it. If it hurt, We talked about this a lot with the Grand Slams when they were having their increases a few years ago about how we didn't think the sport or we didn't want the money to outstrip the means of the sport and to bankrupt the uh, the tour. And I think that's actually a little bit more an issue when we're if, on the ITF side of this for these re increases where I think it's a much bigger increase for a tournament, especially some of these ones that are in less developed countries with no tennis tradition, to have to go from a 10,000 total purse to a 15,000 could, I think, price out a lot more than these Masters. I think pretty much all the Masters, with the exception of, I'm guessing Madrid, just because the Spanish economy has been so shaky recently, most of the Masters are in pretty good shape financially and make pretty good money and will be able to afford this, at least in the current uh, atmosphere of the tour 
but long term, yeah, maybe it means though that this is a bit of a, a down payment for the players and that they secure these increases while they still can. And they're big, 14 a year will add up pretty quickly. Um, and then when it comes to renew next time, they might have to either hold steady or take a small cut, but they will have at least raised the bar pretty high to where that won't be as hurtful. But I mean, I mean, I'm asking this without any knowledge of what the numbers or the history actually say. Okay. But like, has there ever been like a prize money cut? You don't cut prize money. That's like the worst. That's like absolutely acknowledging like that your tournament is weak. Um, so you're never going to get a cut. You may get a, head, a hold steady, but you're never going to get a cut. So setting the new base, the, the new baseline does have a significant effect. Yeah, well, that's fair. I, I do think I'm trying to think I don't I can't say with purpose certainty, but I want to say that at some point the Australian prize money went down slightly in the 90s. But I, I don't have I can't say that with any confidence. Yeah, no, but I agree. But they're basically winning these battles while they can. And it's protecting their future when they're from the, just from the player side, when this um, when they have it good, keeping it good and this is not a battle they would have come out of the negotiating room with quite as uh, sweetly in 2017 if that's when the renewal had been up. I think it's probably fair to say. No, that's definitely fair to say. I think that it's an interesting, I don't know, there, there are those moments where it just kind of laugh, you know, because like you know that the reason why the, tor- the players have this leverage is pretty much because of like four or five, maybe six guys. Yeah. Right. And so it's just funny sometimes to me to like hear kind of like the rest of the tour players like who are outside of that that group of like the four or five like pop off. But, oh, yeah, we're, you know, our tour is like so strong. It's like, well, yeah, five or six players that aren't you that drive your tour. And that's why you're getting paid and you're demanding all this money and you're acting like an entitled person who thinks that they deserve more, even though the reason why the product is strong is not because of you. Yeah. But. And so I don't know. I just am hearing these voices in my head of like people, like some of the ATP players that I've talked to about this with. And I'm just like, ugh. I mean, it comes down a lot to a lot of these arguments about how lower players deserve more money. And ultimately, I mean, and this is something that uh, Joey Hanf wrote about on Tennis Nerds, his blog, is tennis is an entertainment business. Like, you don't deserve money for winning a tennis match. You deserve money because someone paid whether it's a TV network or a fan in the stands, paid to watch you play tennis or the tournament play tennis. I mean, just winning, thats if you win a futures and you get not enough money to cover your expenses, that's obviously not a great sustainable model for you. But if there was no one watching these futures, you don't deserve to make a great living out of something that's irrelevant to consumers. I mean, you're in the consumer services in- industry in the sense that you're providing entertainment for them. And if you're at the challenge level, I understand that people want to make this tour sustainable, but just being a tennis player who isn't entertaining somebody is not, doesn't necessarily earn or merit getting compensation. Whereas, like we've said before, a lot of times these top guys at these mandatory tournaments are really underpaid for what they deserve. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Especially, especially when they lose early. I mean, something like Nadal in New Orleans last year, top seed, number one in the world, big fan favorite, lots of people travel out to California from around the country, around the continent, around the world sometimes to go see him. He loses third round to Dolga Polov, doesn't have a great week in, even in his match before that. And he probably makes, uh, I don't know, like $20,000 in prize money that week. But he was bringing so much more money into the tournament than that. And that is the kind of thing that this helps to reflect. Whereas somebody like, 
I don't, let's say Donskoy beat a number 27 seed and made the third round and is getting the same prize money, he, where he pretty much brought no money to the tournament personally, replacing him. And I mean, it's with no disrespect to Mr. Donskoy. <laughs> Never. Never. God forbid. Bless <laughs> you, Evgeny. I just don't think that he would have been you know, someone who people wouldn't have shown up to see. And that's where the top guys do deserve more. And that's what you see reflected a little bit on the endorsement side, when you see how much more. That's where they make up the big difference in terms of their their fame, is that the endorsements cover that. Where well, and Feder- exhibitions now that and you have exhibitions, things like, right, yeah. exactly. And IPTL, where Federer gets paid, you know, a million plus a night. That's the thing. I mean, Federer, if he goes to a 250, let's say he gets signed for Brisbane or for... Um, like Gestad. Gestad, yeah. He's getting... In the neighborhood of like two million dollars to play a tournament because he's he's the guy and for Indian Wells to get him for free is a great great deal for Indian Wells and their product if one of these tournaments went on the open market to buy a sanctioned for a Masters would be a gr- huge huge bidding war because the ultimate prize in tennis the kid be won if you assume that the slams are right now all immovable objects which I think they are I don't see any slam moving anytime in the next at least 10, 20 years probably beyond that. The Masters are it, and so they should have to pay to maintain that status because you couldn't if you're do if you're doing it if you're trying to build something from scratch with an equivalent field it would take an incredible amount of money. How do you think the Masters using what just because what you said I think is very interesting about how yeah like the the Masters are the next big thing that you bid for in mm-hmm. tennis how do you how do you think they compare in terms of a bidding like an open market bidding war to the World Tour Finals? I don't know World Tour Finals is. Because you get the guarantee, you get, right, like, all these sorts right. of things. But then it's not like a, quote-unquote, real tournament. Like, no matter how people, you know, pump it up. It, yeah. I, yeah, it's a different beast. It's a different beast. So, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just kind of thinking, like, okay, well, if Which I Which is more bid, expensive? Yeah, I'm guessing... Well, I'm guessing that the Masters are still more expensive. To, to buy the rights to? I don't know. I think, that, I think that if there was a bidding... If, let's say, for example, Miami and London both go on the market... I think that London gets a higher price just because it's a much more contained thing. It, it costs are lower of having a one court, one match at a time tournament. It can be yeah. indoors pretty much anywhere. And these Masters events pretty much have to be outdoors. I mean, Paris is indoors, but Paris has some courts and some weird places in that building. And a lot of indoor tournaments do too. It's inter- I mean, it's an interesting yeah. thought because I, I wonder, like, you take a city like Beijing – yeah, which has exactly. made no secrets about the fact that it wants a Masters or yeah. a World Tour Finals, like something. It just wants to be bigger than Shanghai because basically Beijing is embarrassed about the fact that they're the capital of China, yet they don't have the biggest tournament in China. Like Shanghai gets it. So um, I just wonder, just I'm just spitballing. Like I wonder, yeah, if, if you went to like, you know, the Chinese Tennis Association and you said, hey, here's Miami. And here's uh, the the World Tour Finals. Which one do you want? Yeah. And then does Miami come as like which one would they prefer? ATP WTA. Oh, see, yeah, that makes it a little bit different. Okay, so then say whatever Paris. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's Paris. Paris. Yeah, yeah. Here's Paris. Bercy. Here's um. London. London. Like which one? How yeah, would think, how would that think, fit? Yeah, I don't I know. I think London goes bigger. I think it has more hype as an event. There's more press there. There's more coverage. There's more. It's trumped up a little more. I mean, Paris is kind of just another Masters, especially Paris, because Paris Bercy's okay. only real claim to relevance is being a Masters. Um, yeah, I, I would I would take London over that in terms of price. I would think, and but we'll see. I mean, I don't know. These things are going to happen, and the tours and the tournaments should know that. I mean, I don't know if any of them really are in danger of moving, I wouldn't think so, but I wouldn't be shocked if one of the moves, especially if they do it as a, especially if they threaten to have to sell as a protest to this uh, 
money increase and they get called on their bluff or something. I don't right. know. I mean, even something, especially like Madrid, doesn't have a long history at that tournament. Things right. only been there since 09 as any sort of big outdoor clay event. It so. definitely feels more fluid. Yeah. In terms of, of one of the majors. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So so we'll see. Any other thoughts on the Masters before we go to the lower level briefly? Uh, nope. Okay, well, briefly, on the, I wrote an article about this and the increases, and there was a study commissioned by the ITF, all of which is online now in the form of a lovely 90-slide 90 PowerPoint. Basically, one of the main things they did was study a lot of the costs of the lower tour, and they really, really went low on the amount of expenses they calculated and came up with the number that the point where you stop losing money on your career and this is minimal expenses without a coach, without with like minimal minimal hotel and travel costs, or whatever. Was it three thirty five for a man? Number three thirty five in singles, and number two fifty three for women in singles. Um, those numbers are not probably close to reality. I mean, Liam Brody tweeted when he saw this that he was ranked like one ninety and still was way in the red on his career, uh, on, his, on his year, on his expenses in twenty fourteen. He had a pretty good year. Um, and he's somebody who gets LTA funding and stuff too. What, where do you think the cut deserves should be? Like where, of all the, all the tour executives, Kermode, Alistair, even the player side, um, Buderak and things like that have said they don't necessarily think that the Challenger Tour should be a viable place to park your career and just stay there and be a career minor leaguer who makes a good living out of that. They don't think that's what should happen so do you agree with that i guess first off and do you where where should tennis start getting you actual usable money it's a big difference between breaking even and having enough to make a living yeah i mean i i kind of agree that it's it's not a place where you should be able to like live your life okay on the lower levels i i think that that it's kind of the pro tour or bust um, now where that line then gets drawn on the pro tour, you know, that becomes a, a bit more difficult. I mean, I mean, say like top 200, top 150, top 200, maybe 250. Well, 200 is mostly, I mean, if you're in like the below yeah. 150, you're mostly playing challenger. So you're not mostly playing tour events. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I do think that there, I do, I am sympathetic to the concern that if you pay if, if prize money is a little bit too good down at the lower levels that you do have these players who just kind of like futz around down there, have no desire to, to, to kick it up. Um, and that becomes, you know, what's the point? Like that's a yeah. lot of um, uh, logistics from a tour perspective to like throw into sustaining something that doesn't actually pay off for you in the end, in yeah. the end product, which is the pro tour. So I'm I'm more sympathetic to that than not for sure. Do do you think I mean because there is a the LTA also had something today about their cutting some funding yeah. to some of their players and a lot of the players were complaining about it saying oh they need to, you know players break into the top hundred or the average age they were saying in the top hundred is twenty seven and so you should be able to get funding later in your career if you're a struggling five hundred something player which I completely disagree with because I mean yeah. so many of those top hundred players didn't break the top hundred when they were twenty seven they broke it when they were twenty two and have stayed in there. Or younger. This seems to be a sort of notion, or at least a romantic notion, that players who are working hard, and they are working really hard. These incredibly players, hard. Incredibly hard. It's a pretty, I wouldn't say thankless job, but it's a, not an easy life. I mean, we had, you know, James McGee on the show. We've had Freddie Nielsen on the show, um, who are both guys who have done a lot of stuff at the challenger level. And if you want to go back and listen to those episodes, they have a lot to say about 
sort of life on tour at that level and it's not always pretty but yeah on some level i think that's kind of just how it has to be i think tennis is a incredibly pro tennis the world is an incredibly capitalist (laughs) enterprise and i don't think you know division and uh spreading out incomes is is fair to anybody i don't think federer the federers of the world or even let's say the uh verdascos of the world should have to subsidize players who aren't good enough to make it to keep their you know dreams of playing being a pro tennis player alive i think it's a sink or swim thing and i think that changing the gravity of the uh physics of that sink or swimness is uh not something that should really be desired yeah and i do think as well when you start to talk about the players who you hear more kind of complain about, oh, lack of funding, cuts in funding, oh, it's as untenable, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they are, those complaints are seemingly coming from, you know, kind of, you know, like the United States or from Britain. Britain especially. Britain especially. Um, You know, and I kind of, when I hear them, I'm always kind of like, but other people seem to be doing it and not, I mean, they don't love it. You know, like you talk to Ernest Golbis, who obviously is, comes from a very wealthy background and stuff. And you ask him about the challenger tour. He's like, you know, I fucking hate it. Like, you know, like, but I had to do it. And, you know, when you get into the the details of things, he's just like, yeah, like they're just, they're really terrible tournaments to play. Um, you know, in terms of the organization, like that's their thing, you know, yeah. and, um, and he was and he was pretty high level challenger. So he was playing some of the upper level ATP challenger tour stuff, not even these, you know, 10 K's and Gabon or whatever else that people wind up. Exactly. So, you know, it can be obviously very, very tough. But some, there are moments where I hear like the Liam Brodies or 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 Ollie Golding, um, you know, some of the Brits kind of um you know, blanched this idea of like, you're cutting my funding, what am I supposed to do? And I'm kind of like, but other people from other countries seem to be able to make it work. Like, it's not, I'm not saying like, it's like a luxurious thing, but like, they seem to be able to do it. I don't know. Um, You know, without the funding, Um, and whether that's private or, you know, whatever, like, it seems to work for others. So I don't know. Or it just doesn't work. I mean, there's a certain, um, I Let's say there's a certain entitlement that kind of comes off with some of the players who are, and I mean this with you know a lot of respect. Like I said before, they totally. do they do it with incredible passion and a lot of desire and drive. But sometimes it just doesn't work. And I think you know Al Davis, your neighbor in the Bay Area, would say you know if you want to make it, make it a. Uh, I know I know you're not a fan, but he does live there. He'll be <laughs> he'll be in, you know entombed there sometime soon. He's alive still, right? Is he alive? Is he dead? Mm, I thought he died. Oh, maybe it's dead. Well, as the ghost of Al Davis would say, you know, just win, baby. Like, if you wanna, if you wanna, do have a career, like win. You know, people who like a Benchich, for example. Benchich was ranked like outside the top two hundred this beginning of this year. And she obviously she's a rare talent, um, but and she had some funding probably. But you know, she got herself out. You can get yourself out of this. There is upward mobility in this so long as you make steady progress these aren't places these aren't rungs of the ladder that are sturdy enough to stand on forever Um, but if you keep moving up you'll get to safety eventually look the sport is incredibly cruel oh yeah you know i mean like in tennis you know you, you look at all the team sports um you know if you have a bad day maybe the other player you know you can get subbed out and you can still win the game and you know or or you're salaried you're not 
paid based on the game that games won. Right, you so, have a bad year and still make as much money as if you had a good year. Yeah, exactly. Like sport. Yeah. You know, and you know, and and uh, and then even if you look at a sport like golf, where the sponsorship money off of the off of the the course is pretty tremendous to where you can have a really good life and like no one in the world has ever heard of you and not just because you play golf but because like you literally like barely ever make cuts but somehow like you're able to make six figures a year and just yeah. like chill out easily yeah. so tennis is incredibly cruel and it's a dog eat dog for sure um but because that is the way that the sport is i think that i can understand from the top players perspectives from those guys who are in like whatever the top 150 or top 100 who are playing on the pro tour the idea of them being like hold on you want me to cut like 10 percent to some dude i don't even know just because what for charity yeah like you know like i had to like you know and and obviously you know that that opens up the debate of whether or not things could be should be changed right like let's change the culture of the sport but i don't know i mean like I said before, with the entertainment factor, like if they're not bringing, if their yeah. tournaments aren't bringing, if they're playing tennis is not bringing money into the sport, then why are they making money? Exactly. So one of the firsts we both had this year was being on the voting committee for the International Tennis Hall of Fame, which had four candidates for the recent player category this year: uh, Sergey Bruguera. Evgeny Kafelnikov, Mary Pierce, and Amelie Moresmo, which is a very interesting quartet because they were so relatively similar by the main metric use of just slams won. All of them had won two slams. And yet, I, so there was no standout shoe-in, you know, Agassi, Sampras, Graf, whatever in this group. So it was all people who were kind of somewhat borderline using that one metric. And so there was a lot of debate on how you make this decision. And Greg Couch wrote a column uh, for Rolling Stone, where he's now a contributor about this. And Courtney, you want to read off a key passage of what Greg said? Sure. So I'll, I'll, so I'll just read Greg's uh, effectively the thesis of his, his piece, which people should read. It's very manageable. Let me put it this way. Michael Chang is in the International Tennis Hall of Fame. He was never ranked number one in the world. He never won one major title, or he won one major title, the French Open, when he was 17 years old and was, by all accounts, a very nice guy. Kafelnikov won two majors, was ranked number one, and won a gold medal at the Sydney Olympics. He also used to beat Chang regularly. So if Chang is in the Hall of Fame, how am I supposed to leave Kafelnikov out? With all, res- all due respect to the five nominees, none of them was historically great. The problem is Chang. The bar was lowered to let him in, and now the Chang line is the new mark to cross for the tennis hall. If someone almost is someone almost as good as him, fine, he's in too. Eventually, it becomes the hall of very good. Eventually, you water down the meaning of great. So that was effectively Greg Crouch's no. thesis, which is, and it's true. I mean, I think that um, in a lot of ways, uh, with Michael Chang having been admitted. There is this and get and, and Sabatini. I'll put in this category. and Sabatini as well. P- two players who have been admitted single slam winners, uh, never reached number one. And or did Sabatini reach like no, for no. a week or two or something like that? Okay, maybe I just think so. yeah. No. So, um, no, she wasn't because she didn't, yeah. wasn't at the she wasn't at the thing, at exactly. She wasn't at the thing, at yeah. that was how I used it as well. Um, yeah. yay, uh, but yeah, you I mean you start to think, okay, if you won a major, you're in the hall of fame now. I disagreed a little bit and i think ben when you and i were talking about the nominees i think offline last week we had different thoughts we had different thoughts and i think that at the end of the day we had different ballots i mean like we ended up voting differently i think so the discussion about chang was similar to me about or 
I just felt like this whole this whole theory that he's the one that kind of set that line of just the one slam thing and maybe he shouldn't have ever made it. I think I, I disagree with that in a lot of ways uh, just because, you know, he was first Asian American or first Asian you know, a descent person. descent person to win a slam, did it at 17 years old, you know, had a great career otherwise, but at least yeah. as, it, you know, from an American perspective, I think that you do take into account, set aside the stats and you look at a, a, a player who played the game and kind of left the game maybe at least a little bit different than it was when he came in or, or she came in. And I kind of applied that a little bit to the Amelie Moresmo vote or the same logic a little bit, but anyways, which is separate, but um, we can get to in a, in a little bit, but what did you think Ben of, of uh, Greg's thoughts and um, how it pertains to this year's ballot? I think it's interesting. I think the whole concept of what's good enough to be a hall of famer is inherently subjective. I mean, it's, I mean, hall of fameness with the except, I mean, there are people who clearly clear, any at all uh, bar to get there, like anybody who's won, let's say, upwards of four or five slams in current metrics. Talking active players right now, we're talking about people like the Williams sisters, both of them, uh, Sharapova, Djokovic, Federer, at all. All of them are super safely in. That's not going to be debated whatsoever. And then you get the, and then there's the distinction between what's a very good or a you know hall of greats. And I think in tennis, because there are so few good players i mean this sport presents so many fewer chances to be a champion than a team sport and i think you do have to be a little bit more generous of of, unless you want a really really small haul which is fine i mean look at what's going to happen with the ballots coming up in uh i don't know eight years from now or something or whenever whenever let's say like Roddick is passed, there's a stretch, especially on the men's side where there were not many people winning grand slams like from 2006 to 08 or 09 all or from a stretch in there there were times when like all but a couple of them were my Federer and Nadal so you can't elect Federer and Nadal every year so are you just gonna have times when there's nobody getting in is that the right thing to do or does the bar move up and down where is there always a certain number of greats in a given era I don't know I just think it's completely I mean the concept of being Hall of Fame is a little bit silly on some level the whole it's kind of a self-indulgent discussion of oh who is who's the real real greats and whatever it's not an important distinction i don't think in the sport but yeah drawing the line i think it's always going to be a lot of gray for a lot of people and it's personal preference which is why they put it to a uh, fairly large committee vote yeah i mean it's incredible i mean it's entirely subjective obviously I do think that, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll put this question to you, Ben. Do you, are you of the camp that thinks, you know, a player should only be measured within his or her own era? Or is it, is tennis at the place where, like in baseball, where, you know, stats are run across the board and, you know, numbers are compared between generations um, and things like that? I, I, I take more, pl- more players in their generations. Like, I'm not going to look at, like, Andy Roddick when his name gets on the ballot someday. I'm not going to look at him in the context of what McEnroe did. I don't think that makes any sense. Um, I'm going to look at him in the context of what he was able to do in his era and what he meant to his era of tennis, first and foremost. That's the thing. What and that's he what meant. What, what exactly. You mean is more, and, and what you did, but what you mean is largely because of what you did. Um, so, for example, Roddick, I think, is a really good case to get in the Hall of Fame um, when he comes up to vote because he, even though he only won one Grand Slam, he was a perennial for several, several years, top five for a long time. Um, the very consistent leader of American tennis, which is a big mantle, and he did it really well. He made a bunch of other Grand Slam finals, uh, four more that he was runner-up at. He was number one 
he won a lot of tournaments. Um, he was generally a pretty good, very charismatic ambassador for the sports. Obviously, he was often rough around the edges, but I think what he did really, for me, Roddick is a stronger candidate than any of the four this year, even though he only won one Grand Slam. I think just because his presence in the sport was much, much bigger than any of those four. Like a Kafelnikov, especially, I think, was about as, with the exception of his influence in Russia, which is relatively regional, I guess. It's significant, but it wasn't really hands-on, if that makes any sense. He didn't go there and start academies or anything. He was he was an inspiration, but it wasn't as hands-on. And on the actual pro circuit, I don't think he was somebody who uh, transformative presence at tournaments, if that makes any sense. I don't think he was a... No, he wasn't a guy that was selling tickets. Yeah. Selling no. tickets or anything. He just but, happened tournaments i do think that for, for you know in support of kafelnikov i i personally wouldn't downplay as much as i think probably you do his influence within russia we had an entire russian revolution within tennis yeah. because of kafelnikov you talk to any single one of the the russian players they all tell you i started playing because of yevgeny and kornikova and yeah but i'm i mean i'm thinking like you know like i don't think sharapova ever you know, like like a Sharapova always points to Kafelnikov. Well, um, yeah, but Kafelnikov was from Sochi too, as part of that. Well, for sure, but I'm I'm saying like that's okay. my point is that like okay. you know in terms of inspiring a generation of players and players who eventually did have impact, whether or not he went back and like shook their hand or like inspired them or like whatever, the fact that he did what he did does matter. And so I think in that way, you worry sometimes. I worry sometimes about the hall being very Western centric. Like, oh, oh yeah, we is. don't like that guy. And he's Russian, and we don't know like what we don't really know what the deal is with Russian tennis, and you know you're not getting in, and, and that becomes like a very like this is stupid, and it's so tennis if if that happens. Like, what do you we, think? Yeah, you, you know. But anyways, what do, you, what do you think about character assessments? A lot of people, when because this is not Kafelnikov's first time on the ballot, I believe. I think he's fallen short of the yeah threshold before before we got on this conversation. Um, and a lot of people who a few writers came out and said I did not vote for Kafelnikov because he was a jerk. He was terrible work with he was rude he was bad for the sport was not a positive presence do you think that sort of character judgment is a fair inclusion in a hall of fame summing up someone's uh deservingness no i mean well yes and no like he was a jerk absolutely not like you can't use that to keep somebody out of the hall of fame like this one time like i put my hand out and he like didn't shake it and kind of like looked at me funny (laughs) like that's really freaking stupid or even if it's like a a now Bandian type like prickliness, you know, of just like, oh no, he's just outwardly rude. That should not be keeping you out of the Hall of Fame. But with Kafelnikov, it's a different thing where, you know, there's a lot of whispers about just whether or not there was like match fixing going on or, or you know, some kind of things untoward and that go towards integrity. Being a jerk has nothing to do with integrity. Breaking okay. rules has something to do with integrity. Now, if you're not going to vote for him because of all those whispers and all that sort of stuff, fine. That's your prerogative and I'm not going to disagree with you. Like, I'm not going to tell you like that's a bullshit reason. But if it's going to be like, oh, he wasn't like a fun guy or I, he wouldn't go to drinks with me like and grab a beer like that's really freaking stupid and juvenile and it makes the whole hall of fame just an old boys club effectively and if you kiss the ring then you get in no way like it's about your on-court accomplishments and what influence you have but you know like at the same time like you know we can think about it like from a baseball perspective right like yeah if you were a member of you know the black Sox, or (laughs) you know like uh you know or you know the whole pete rose question all that sort of stuff totally fair game so to sum up kathalnikov we can go over each of the four a little bit on their own um i voted for kathalnikov courtney did you i did oh there we go so we agreed on that one 
Uh, let's go to the other guy next, just some of the men's side, who is Sergey Bruguera, who I think is a first time on the ballot. Maybe no, he must not be. He must have been on there before. Um, anyway, he's on the ballot this time. He won two French Opens and not much else. And, I mean, he was a very, very clear clay court player. He was uh, didn't have very much success outside the clay courts. He didn't play a lot of times outside clay courts. He never made it to the quarterfinals of any other slam, and he only played Wimbledon four times in a career that spanned over a decade. Um, for that sort of limiting reason, I did not vote for Sergey Bruguera. I said no. I also said no. And I should, but although it should be mentioned that most of the, the tennis writers that I talked to, like that were, um, you know, actually covered him mm-hmm. um, and were, you know, in dead into the sport while I was like, whatever, reading yeah. newspaper articles and occasionally catching a match or two, whatever was aired. Like most people tell you that like, oh yeah, he changed clay court tennis and things like that and stuff. So that I think seemed to be why people backed him and stuff. So, but that was kind of a, one of the, the arguments for him. Yeah. I went through, I watched, I, I had never seen him play, which made this tougher uh, because mm-hmm. he was a little bit. So I thought, I thought for a while about abstaining from him. Um, just because I didn't know much about him at all. But on some level, the fact that I'm pretty dang involved in tennis and have never heard, I'd never really heard of him being a person discussed as a player made me think that his legacy was not exactly monumental in the sport. Um, and I went and watched a bunch of YouTube clips of his matches, a lot of his French first French Open run. Yeah, overall, I just, especially the real, real specialization on clay for me counted against him a lot. Maybe that's bias of this current era where we don't really have specialists anymore and pretty much anybody who has won a slam can contend more or less at all four um, these days. Yeah. For some reason, he, he, he just didn't strike my current criteria for what that should be. Do, um, do you think that's, I mean, what would it take for a surface specialist to get in? I mean, uh, now it, to be fair, nowadays there really aren't surface specialists really. There really aren't. Um, yeah, but... I mean, the only, I'm trying to think of who would even qualify as a surface specialist now. Like, what if Petra only wins Wimbledon's? Or if Petra has branched out, I mean, she made semis in Australia and French. Yeah, that's she true. Made, you know, she's won Montreal. I mean, she's done other stuff. She won she uh, is it's, capable. Istanbul. She's done, yeah, she's won on all surfaces and Madrid. Um, yeah, so she's, for me, not that. I'm trying to think of someone who, there isn't really anybody who's there won a really slight. No, that's the thing. There just aren't in this era, which is a large reflection of the conditions, I think. In Schiavone? Schiavone, but Schiavone um, only won one, uh, only made one final. I think only made one slam semi. Oh, no, no, sorry. She made the final again the next year. Yeah. But she, yeah, she wasn't great on any. I mean, she, yeah, I don't know. But she wasn't even like a perennial factor at Roland Garros even. She wasn't tearing up clay all the time. Right. She kind of had a very short window. Schiavone, for the future reference, would not get voted by me at all. Marion Bartoli. No, but I would hope I would love her speech. <laughs> so maybe, but no, not one. T- I, if, if you're a one-time winner, you have to have a lot of other things going to you. You have to be number well, one. And, I think you have to have done something else. And I think that this goes a little bit towards this discussion of like, uh, well, you and I had this discussion, Ben, about how yeah. Craig's theory and just apply it as fact. Okay, let's say there's the Chang line, yeah. and let's say that that is like really stuck in everybody's brain. You win a major you're in effectively, yeah. you know, um, that 
do we are we bound to like hold that line? I mean, can't we as the sport evolves so. and as you know things become the sport changes, writers change, um, standards change. We, we forget sometimes that tennis is a very young sport yeah. compared to you know, and so as a professional ho- sport, as a professional sport, the Hall of Fame, um, you know, is it you know when it first starts, you kind of are trying to pack it to make it seem like yeah. it's an actual Hall of Fame. And as it becomes more professional and as it becomes, you know, uh, caught up to date, right? yeah, caught up to date, then you make more strict uh, uh, decisions. And it isn't about just like, oh, he was a he was a lovely chap. Let's put him in, you know, like that sort of thing. It becomes like, no, like you're a really nice guy and you want a major or a woman. But like, I'm not voting for you. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the standards do have to change. I mean, it's, yeah. it's up for to future generations of. I don't know, tennis commentators, writers, fans to expect more, I suppose. Players, yeah. I think yeah. the current I think the current members of the Hall of Fame, the inductees, I think they vote too. Mm. I believe. I think so. Uh, at least some of them do. Yeah, so I mean, I don't feel beholden to what got decided before I this may just, you know, be needlessly rebellious to me, but I don't feel beholden to what voters in not two thousand two did. You know, right. I'm kinda kinda come at it with my own criteria and perspectives and i'll look and see what's been done but right. on that front and i do also think the strict slam count doesn't um and we've discussed this before with things like i don't know who's had a better career uh ski of or wozniacki or something right. i don't think winning a slam um or two slams is automatically always better than a one slam career like i would put for example roddick and chang for that matter ahead of somebody like a kuznetsova who has been so all over the place in her career and is a really good talent, but has had so much bad tennis that I think, whereas Chang was really a, um, a model of consistency and was a top uh, fixture in the top 10 and top five for a better part of the nineties, even though he only won his grand slam in the eighties, he hung around and was in there being a relevant person at tournaments for so long and Kuznetsova, I think, is like never gone into the tournament as a favorite. Any tournament. <laughs> Just, <laughs> because who knows? And that says something. I mean, and she's put together two good weeks. I will say really only one good win in any of those two slam draws that she went, went through, which was beating Serena on clay during a time when Serena wasn't great on clay in 09. And the other parts of her draws were pretty soft. I don't know. I mean, I think there is a lot of subjectivity that goes into it well the, the, it's, yeah. i mean if 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 you guys want to have like a, a debate that could end in like blood being drawn like get your buddies like a six get you and to get you and your buddies together get a six pack and debate the kuznets of a hall of fame question you, do you say you think would you vote yes for her i don't know i genuinely I mean, it depends on how the rest of her career goes i you know i think that i am hesitant to say i would not i mean i I, at this point i'm probably more inclined to say yeah i would rather than i would not but i it would but it's tough i mean it's one of those like depends on what uh what side of the bed i woke up on any given day you know it it just flips and flops back and forth in terms of how i think about it but you know and then you have the bigger broader question is like is did bit you know well because that's of a question is like endless debate because i also know that there's the sveta in my head which is like very much tied into what I believe to be untapped potential. So uh-huh. I see her as like the thing that she should be. Okay. And maybe that's, 
and if I see her in that light, then I'm like, oh, like she's into the Hall of Fame. Like she's just a ridiculous athletic talent. The things that she could do with the ball. She's one of the first women to really hit that heavy top spin. Really, yeah. really, really heavy top, like Rafa like, you know, uh, uh forehand. Um, which was great. Incredible movement. If she didn't have to think, she great improviser. Yeah, she <laughs> uh, uh those sorts of things. Great quote. Uh incredibly honest. Uh you know, all these sorts of things. Yeah, I mean she kind of she kind of seems to me to be kind of more Hall of Fame-y than not. But then if I actually sit and look at everything in the cold, harsh light of day um, with her stats and, as you mentioned, her her inconsistency and, yeah. you know. And in terms of legacy, and, I don't think she has any legacy. Yeah, legacy point. legacy becomes a difficult uh, a difficult one. I don't think that she gets that the check of that box, you know. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Like I said, like there would be days where if somebody struck up this conversation, I'd be like, yes, absolutely. And then there'll be days where they're like, are you kidding me? Never. Um, so so it's interesting. But who knows? I mean, Sveta could win two more majors. Yeah. Well, if she does big fake, <laughs> she totally could. <laughs> she could. Sveta, Sveta could win, definitely win the French Open next year. Oh, for sure. She could. To- if you told me right now that Kuznetsova wins the 2015 French Open, I'd be like, okay, yep, I see that. Could happen. Um, let's get to the people who are actually on this ballot to wrap Sorry. up our. Yeah. That's okay. No, no, no. It's good. It's a good. But it was good to t- take it in a little more modern context. It showed the issues come into this. The two women, both French, both won two slams. Let's start with Amelie Moresma because you mentioned her briefly before about other things she contributed, which you think contributed to your uh, thinking on her for this vote. So why don't you talk me through your uh, your Momo process? My Momo process. I mean, obviously her on court or her on court credentials are you know what they are, which are you know, solid credentials, two-time two slam winner. Number one. Number one. Twice. You know, yeah. Yep. And, uh, you know, was was right there amongst everyone. Now, at the same time, like, she kind of was in a really tough era of, um, of uh, you know, with along yeah. with Justine and obviously the Williamses, Davenport. I mean, it was it was solid. That, that, that was probably the last great era of women's tennis, right? Effectively. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, I, I voted for her. Um, but I think that in addition to her on-court accomplishments, you know, coming, you know, being the first, was it active female player to come out? Maybe uh, I can't remember if like Martina. Martina was very out. She was her, very her out. Her career. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, like just to come out and like risk, um, you know, losing very sponsorships. Yeah, very early in her career. To handle all that, um, especially uh, in the spotlight and with tennis being in, in a different place, I think was was pretty brave. And I thought that was that definitely goes into her um, her pro column now with working with Andy Murray. I think there's that's a big barrier that she's helped to break um, on that level. I think that that gets a tick as well. I mean, she's still continuing to contribute to the sport. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I thought that in a lot of ways she was a no brainer for me in terms of of, uh, of who to vote for. Yeah, I voted for Moresmo too. I think it was such a it was such a weird class because I think you can make arguments for any of the four, um, but her winning two slams, being number one on two different occasions, uh, you know, playing a type of game that was really really pleasing to a lot of people at a time when that was not a common style at all. I mean, she was in the sort of Mary Carillo dubbed Big Babe era of tennis and played a sort of much more fluid you know, beautiful game that a lot of the players of her time going to the net, having slices, different sorts of stuff. And what she brought to the game, I thought was worthy. And she's memorable. I think just being memorable is a huge part of this criteria and her continued involvement in the game, breaking some boundaries as Murray's coach and, you know, continuing to have a presence in French tennis as well. I think that her, 
her legacy and her presence of the sport is is worthy of a spot in this uh in this pantheon whoop yep and last one mary pierce mary pierce um has the most complicated career of of the of the four probably in terms of just what she went through i mean she had a very long career she was starting off as a teen in the early 90s won her first slam in 95 at the australian open uh kind of went away for a little while had some problems with her father being abusive came back won her second title at the french open in 2000 then in 2005 she made two more finals so she made i think she made her first slam final at the french in 94 so she made slam finals 11 years apart and then she retired in late 06 i believe after a or she stopped playing late 06 after a uh, severe uh knee injury a career ending knee injury and she started that season in the top 10 so really she had probably a couple more years left in her when she got ripped away from from the game uh i voted yes for mary pierce for her um her story of overcoming some adversity and uh domestic situations and also for her longevity i mean for me doing that kind of things over a decade apart is pretty impressive and she was somebody who was a again a player who was near the top for quite a while and at her best was so, so good. I mean, he want to talk about pure, pure talent. I mean, the term peak Pierce is <laughs> used by a lot of fans, uh, especially on, you know, tennis forum and elsewhere. It's sort of the ultimate <laughs> level of the sport and peak Pierce would beat anybody. And this sort of legend of that and what she was able to do in a sort of bit of a Del, po- Del Potro-esque way, um, I-, I think I voted yes for her. I thought she was actually, for me, she was the easiest in the sport to vote yes for Fair enough. I voted no. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so there we go. Um, yeah, I mean, I love Mary Pierce. I loved watching her. I was like a big, like Mary Pierce fan, watching her back in her peak Pierce days, because I love I love power tennis. I love big babe tennis, and she was like the queen when she played well. And ob- yeah. obviously, being both French and just Mary Pierce, it there was always an adventure involved um oh, from so much drama so much drama from start to finish um and she was just so nice like she was just like a nice lady um but uh but yeah it just it just still wasn't um compelling to me um enough i mean i think that you know maybe if she comes up again maybe my opinion will have changed which is like totally unfa- unfair i guess in a lot of ways because it's not That's like allowed. her it's not like her she would have done more to like better her legacy or or less in it um but maybe time, maybe I need time to, to process the Pierce. But yeah, the, 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 the two majors, yeah, I mean, that's, you almost get the sense that that's going to be the new Chang line. It's going to be, you know, like, two. as yeah, two, that, that, that one isn't necessarily going to be enough uh, to kind of put you at 70% to getting in, that the two is supposed to put, put you there, maybe. I don't know. But yeah, in, but in terms of legacy, I just didn't feel it. Like, I really didn't feel like game was different after, or like, Pierce left, I guess. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm totally, you know, again, this is totally subjective, but I just never, I never felt it. Um, I That's felt like true she, in the sense. That I, I like felt I like she came about... and she played and then she left and tennis went on and had Marion Pierce never picked up a racket or, you know, that it wouldn't be that different. That's true. I mean, I don't hear her talked about as a lot as like from the players of this generation, like, oh, who was your favorite? I don't hear Mary Pierce get mentioned almost at all in that conversation, if at all. Um, I don't think, like like Kuznetsova, she was never a consistent, dominant force on the tour, even though she had many good flashes. Which, again, like like I said with Kvitova, is kind of the same thing. I don't think that's really um, a deal-breaker. Um, yeah, but I just thought with her, 
Great. I don't know. Like, like I said, this is all subjective. And yeah, so it's totally. Whatever you, yeah. what do you guys think, we'd be interested to hear too. Well, your own personal ballots for these four are, and for any of the current uh, active uh, or yeah, any of the current active or recently retired players who were in this conversation, the people like Roddick, like Leighton Hewitt, who's a two-time winner, who's going to be. Uh, retiring theoretically fairly soon. I mean, I would have said that five years ago, but he's still here. So, uh, yeah, whenever he retires, he'll be a two-slam winner. He was a former number one, but he's on that same sort of fence. Uh, Lena is a two-time slam winner, but I think people think she has a really good shot because of what she represented in the sport. So, yeah, it's an interesting conversation. If you see someone like uh, Azarenka is at two right now, Kavita is at two. Yeah, that's uh, the fun conversation to have is, like, if their careers ended today, right? Yeah. Like, certain players against certain players or certain ballots. and Yeah. You know, and then there are other players where Murray's like, it too, actually. Yeah, Murray's it too as well. I mean, I obviously, I mean, I think you know when you start to take the extenuating circumstances of each per- player's career and puts put them into context, that's where the debate becomes either completely uninteresting because they're no brainers, yes or no, or becomes right. really, really interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting debate to have. It's a good tennis bar stool debate, and so we're happy to do that from the comfort of our own, not stools. <laughs> We asked for some questions and we got a few. We're going to do this sort of a lightning round format here to get everything in. First question today comes from Carrie of Carrie at California on Twitter. It asks, which of the top 10 or 20 guys would make the, of the current top 10, 20 would make the best coach someday? I am going to go Andy Murray. Andy Murray, why? I think that... A, I mean, he's he's obviously an incredibly intense guy. He's super focused on work ethic, um, you know, working hard, being physical, all these sorts of things. But I also think that he does have a really good tennis tennis acumen. Not any better or worse than like Rogers or Rafa's or Novak's. But there's just something about Andy Murray that just I don't know that just I could just see he's just toiling away in the coach's box and kind of enjoying it. I think mm-hmm. that that's also the thing is like I think that he would actually enjoy teaching and coaching. Um, he obviously, his mom's a coach, like he's kind of, um, of that kind of, that DNA is in him. His Um, his fiance is a coach's daughter. Yeah. And I just don't really see that, like, when I'm going kind of down the list that the other players would enjoy it as much as Andy. Okay. I don't know. That's a good answer. Uh, My answer of top 20 guys is Tommy Robredo. Nice uh, one. Because I think that, well, basically I'm basing this off of. Uh, the Kyrgios match at the U.S. Open, which just oh, seemed so like true. such a lesson of a tennis match. It was such a fun match. It, it was a late-night match. It was a really smart scheduling by the tournament to have Vibrato Kyrgios be a night session. Um, and what he did out there just showed such such awareness of how to put together a match, how to exploit weaknesses. And maturity. And, and maturity. So much maturity. And I think that Tommy Vibrato, maybe it's just partially that he just looks older, but even, I just get the sense that he has so much like mileage on him for somebody who's not as old as I ever think he is. Mm. Um, and he, I feel like he's been, I remember being really surprised when he was, how old is he now? He is currently 32. I remember when he was like 27, five years ago, thinking like, what? He's 27? I thought he was like 33 or something. And so, <laughs> it's his love of he's, he's, he's he just, just comes across as the Dosa Keys guy. There you go. You know. I think he just has this sort of old wiseness about him or sort of a measured, calm presence that I think could be uh, very beneficial for somebody in the coaching ranks. There's definitely gravitas to Tommy Bobredo. Yeah. Right? I mean, he's somebody who, yeah, he's somebody who's a quiet respect about him. Yeah. So I'll be Tommy Bobredo. And you're on the women's side that jumps out as a coach? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I just, I'm looking at the list, I just saw JJ and started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> 
know who I could actually see as a coach? Mm. Weirdly, is Kerber. Mm. I see Kerber evolving into a coach someday. Sarcastically like... clapping when her when her charge hits an, a totally unnecessary unforced there. I mean, I just mostly want to see reaction shots from the box of Kerber someday, coaching some young German hopeful and just like rolling her eyes. That's what I want to see. I like that. I like that. Uh, top 20, I think. Ooh. Go ahead. I don't know if she'd be a good coach, but I would want like Andrea Petkovic to coach people. At life or at tennis? I think isn't it the same. Yeah, pretty much. It's the same. Like, you know, like, again, like, I think in the same vein as kind of an Andy Murray, like mature, um, good tennis mind, articulate, like knows how to interact with people, like isn't awkward, you know, like, I think that, you know, like Fed Cup captain, like she'd like kill it as Fed Cup captain, German Fed Cup captain. And like, you know, when she's all done, said everything's said and done. So I don't know. I think that going down the list, like that's the name that pops out. The one I'm going to revise my pick on the inside to Halep. I think Hal yeah. would be a really good coach. I think her just brain and intensity and no nonsenseness about the sport could work pretty well. We'll see. I mean, we don't have a big. Uh, yeah, I don't have enough. She's pretty, but... she's pretty new, but I, I think that I could see that working well. Yeah, I could definitely but see that. Have to be Romanian though for her. Oh mission. my gosh! And by the way, I may have to revise my Andrea Petkovic pick. Okay. Venus. Yeah, Venus would be good. Venus would be a great coach. Although like, I'm not. Yeah. I just feel like the way she went through the sport with her upbringing and her her uh, intensity and her battling, I'm not sure how you transfer that right away. I think she'd be a really good like mentor. But as a day-to-day I coach, hope. I don't know. Eh, I, mean, I wouldn't doubt her. I wouldn't be like, oh, if she was a coach, oh, she can't coach, but – I just you know, I think I that know. like she has like the good balance of like the work ethic and also I think that tactically she's incredibly intelligent when it comes to to tennis tactics. I don't think that she's given as much credit on it. Like she may not like execute it like yeah. within her own game, but like when you actually talk to her and ask her to break down things and are able to get her to a place where she will talk about it, like she's incredibly and smart about it. Um and articulates it pretty clearly and well. Um yeah, no, I like I I look forward to the day one day when like it's like U.S. versus Germany Fed Cup final, and it's Petco on one side and Venus on the other. That'd be cool. It'd be pretty neat. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, next question in our blitz comes from Ange uh, for all services who asks us uh, NCR Fashion Police best worst slam winning kits of the year. Mm. So and best best worst overall also. Um, but slam winning is much more specific. There's only eight of those, so it's probably a little more manageable. Um, anything jump out at you? Best, I'm going to have to go... I mean, it sounds really weird and super boring, but I really liked Novak's Wimbledon kit. Because okay. it was the white Uniqlo, and I like what I like about Uniqlo is because the logo is red, and like a yeah. very bright red, so it's kind of automatically adding some color. But if I recall correctly, there's like black piping um down the sides and it just looked it looked classy um classy yeah i, I really liked that kit um okay so i'm gonna go novak for best overall best slam winner yeah best slam winner overall i will take sharapova at the french mm. i like that one i really the pink and the orange no okay no, I, she looked like i don't know like a like a somebody eating like strawberry frozen yogurt dropped their cone on an orange traffic cone <laughs> That's a nice visual for me. I like <laughs> I like strawberry ice cream cones. It looked like food, her outfit. It was food-hued. It was and very someone... sherbet Yeah, and for somebody who's in the sweets industry, 
I thought it was a cohesive look. Fair enough. Okay, so those are the best. Uh, worst? Oh. Of just slam winners? I think it's chillish. Yeah, it's chillish. It's got to be chillish. That was pretty ugly. The that yellow. was not good. No. That was not good. There you go. Um, overall, bet most memorable map after the year? Oh, overall? Across yeah. the board? It's yeah. got to go to Thomas Burdick and his Hawaii Five O, right? I would think so. I mean, you have Hawaii Five O. You have Bolelli's America sleeve. Yeah. You have and you have um, Radic Stepanik's whatever the hell that was at the U.S. Open, <laughs> which could be said pretty much any year. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Which is yeah. why I'm starting to kind of like leave Radic Stepanik off my like worst dress list because I'm like, and then Radic Stepanik step on court at the U.S. Open and wore some a stupid. And it's thing. intentional with him. I think there has to be a certain degree of youth. You're trying your best. It has to be. And earnest. I think I think Stepanik is doing it with a little bit of, and maybe he, I don't think he admits this, but with a little bit of intentional uh, out thereness. And I think you don't I think you don't want to be someone like even someone like a Bethany Maddock, I don't I think is almost in a too self aware category for this. Fair. I think my my vote for overall fashion achievement in twenty fourteen and previous years, but this is really her most consistent year at tour level, was is Camilla George. Yeah, I was gonna say George. I was looking through photos recently and like you you so gotta many watch different out. things. She wears so, so many, many different things, things and you kind of have to watch out because it could be not safe for work because those hemlines are very short. So short. Um, yeah. Not a lot of fabric that she gets. Not a lot of fabric. I also do want to give a shout out, and this is so weird that I'm picking Wimbledon kits. I think that on the women's side, my favorite kit of the year, Grand Slam or non-Grand Slam, I'm pretty sure this is right, is mm-hmm. Wimbledon, is Serena's Wimbledon dress. Really? It was really, really cute. And the funny thing is that, like, it was the same silhouette, if I remember, as her really ill-conceived French Open one, which was, like, yellow and gray. But somehow the colors made the dress look super weird and ill-fitting. But at Wimbledon... Yeah, that dress, that wasn't good. Yeah, but at Wimbledon in all white, it looked really good. I liked it a lot. There we go. I also liked Venus's at Wimbledon, too. Yes. Uh, The Tennis Island asks us, next question, who is more likely... To win a first major in 2015, Wozniak or Halep? <laughs> it's tough, uh, but I will pick Caroline. I think Caroline finished 2014 so incredibly well, and I think she. Well, I'm thinking she win it first because I really think she had a chance to win in Australia if she maintains what she did at the end of this year. Uh, you know, the U.S. Open series and beyond. I think she can do it. I think Halep will need some help anywhere but the French, where I think she has a better chance at any one slam than Caroline. But Caroline, I think, can win either hardcore slam. So I'll pick yeah. Caroline, but not by much. I'm I'm going to go Halep um, okay. because I'm playing the numbers. Halep can win any one of the four slams. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Caroline can't. Caroline, to me, can only win uh, on hard courts. So she's going to get a shot at two apples, whereas Halep, you know, could ostensibly do it on any one of the surfaces so yeah. i mean it, her winning wimbledon would be a freaking troll of the century but <laughs> like she can i mean i mean if, who knows what happens in that semifinal uh against bouchard if she doesn't roll her ankle um sure. so and then and then everybody as anybody will say it's a roll of the dice in a final um and halep wouldn't be bashing balls from the baseline and giving petra easy points and she'd be adjusting she'd be adjusting unlike what genie did so she i mean you know and she very almost you know could have won um the french as well so yeah so i give her a chance at all four majors um yeah so i'm gonna go halep but yeah not by much 
There you go. Uh, Curtis asks us, this is our last show of this, this year. Uh, Curtis asks us, which tournament are you most looking forward to in the first week of 2015? Hmm. Uh, Brisbane. Brisbane? Yeah. Unless, I mean, ho- it's, yeah, it's either going to be Brisbane or Hotman, but I'm going to go Brisbane. I'll say Hotman. I like the pairing of, I'm not super jingoistic or patriotic or, you know, USA, USA when it comes to team competitions. But if John and Serena don't win Hotman Cup, that's a huge failure. Such a huge failure. Like, that is our complete A team. We are maxing out at that tournament. Um, by the way, Jack Sock is not playing Hotman because he had a recent hip surgery, uh, which we should mention here. So yep. John Isner filled in for him. Uh, yeah, I think Hotman should be fun ride and and corne pair corne pair corne pair is pretty solid i mean there's also i I mean all of that and we haven't even mentioned red vonska yanowitz yeah pretty which is amazing pairing pretty great i have a request for our listeners i was doing it today i don't have the video skills for this at all i want someone to go on youtube all the videos are there so you can rip them off i want someone to make a compilation of the 2011 hotman cup final mixed doubles match and super cut every time John Isner serves at Justine Ennen. Because it is <laughs> like she is not even within meters of the ball frequently. And just like ace after ace after ace. She gets one point, she wins the second serve point once and crowd roars. Um, but it is funny. <laughs> Someone wants to do it. And John is like year later, years later was mentioning like most funny ever had on tennis court. He was like serving to Justine Ennen. Uh, because she was, you know, in the final, they were that was a live rubber doubles, and she could not touch the ball. So if anyone can do that supercut, you'll get a lot of YouTube views. It will be amusing. I will be eternally grateful. All those views will be from Ben. Yeah, yeah. every morning it'll be a good way to start the day. Um, there you go. Those are our answers to that. Last oh, la- this is a good last wrap up for this uh, from Letitia Bessel who asked us if we're going to do a Remember When sequence uh, on this show because she listened to it multiple times last year and it was hilarious. And we did this on, you did this on Twitter, Courtney. I did. Um, which was, I don't think we need to rehash it because you got so many good answers that I don't think we'd be doing much original unstudied work there. So I will say, go search at 40 Deuce Twits, hashtag Remember When. You'll get a lot, a lot of good stuff. Um, what were some of your favorite Remember Whens that you had come up? Because you, um, you got a lot of participation. It's it. I did, and it was awesome, and I enjoyed it. I have to say that it's. This will maybe give people some insight into what my life has been like um, the last couple of weeks, but um, it feels like it happened so long ago that I genuinely don't remember like who okay. wrote what, and yeah, so much fine. because I've been doing all this year end wrap up stuff. So yeah, I in the, in yeah in addition to obviously uh, reading replies to that tweet but also doing my own research like trying to find like those small moments but a few that stuck out to me that I'm not sure were mentioned they may have been mentioned but or may have not but they were ones where I was I kind of almost gasped because I was like oh my gosh like I totally forgot about that and it felt like such a big deal at the time um one was remember when Grigor Dimitrov cried after losing to Rafa yes, at the Australian Open that. on court oh, wow Forgot on that. Court. He was totally crying. I made a really bitchy tweet about that. I remember Probably, that. Yeah, I know. Everybody did. This is the thing. Is like I totally don't remember it, and yet it's a thing that like blew up Twitter for about two hours. Yeah. Right. I um, said to rehash my tweet about it was um, crying on Rod Laver after losing uh, to Nadal is the most baby fed thing that Dimitrov has ever done. Great tweet. Thank you. Great. I thought it was pretty good. It was a good tweet. Yeah. 
Yeah. Very good tweet. So, yeah. So that was one of the things. Um, and then just like small moments, like Petra Kvitova staring out to space in a complete catatonic state after being like after losing to Peronkova in the semis of uh, of Sydney. Like she was so I- stunned. It's amazing. The Australia stuff, Australia 2014, it feels like so long ago. I completely forgot that that Jersey Janovitz picture of him in front of the fan, which is like my favorite picture of all time, <laughs> happened this year. I thought it happened last year. Yeah. It's crazy. Like the – and the Sloan and Azarenka pegging each other. Totally forgot about that. That was that was fun at the time. Completely forgot about it. Yeah, this tour, there's so much in a year. So, yeah. so much. It's incredible. Uh, and it's these – and what becomes so frustrating is that – like, at least for me doing, like, the year-end stuff, like, I really like focusing on the small moments because I yeah. feel like as, yeah, we can all talk about the four majors and what happened and this and this and that and all the big storylines. But I know that for myself, someone who writes about the sport on a virtually daily basis, who follows everything from a very granular level, yeah, those little moments, like, make my day. Like they're Those the, are what make the sport the day-to-day really life fun. worth it. Exactly. Yeah. Like, really fun and really, like, just... Yeah, great. And so it would just frustrate the crap out of me. Like, if I was like doing like a best tweets of the year thing, uh, thing, and like realize that I forgot this tweet that like was so amazingly epic, but I just have completely forgotten it because so much has happened since then. Yeah. But at the same time, like, why would I remember that? Like, you know, like. Right. So exactly. yeah, there was. I mean, yeah, for a while I completely forgot about Vika putting on that police hat during the rally for Bali. I forgot <laughs> that rally for Bali was this year. Yeah. Um. That's slow, and then a bunch of matches that don't make any year-end list, but were such memorable matches. Like if you like a personal, I often think about like reviving Forty Deuce just for this, like reason of just like writing mm-hmm. my own personal. Like these were my most memorable matches that have nothing to do with like whether they were good or not or yeah. significant. Um, but remember Sloan Panetta? Yeah, that was crazy at Indian Wells. Crazy match. It was nuts. I don't know. So yeah. So I've I've been playing a lot of Remember When for the last seven days. Yeah. So if you want to contribute to Courtney Tasha, keep it going. There's no reason not to. If you have new repressed memories which you suddenly unearthed through uh, therapy or whatever else about this tennis year that were striking to you, uh, let us know. There's some good stuff. Remember when Yana Shepalova A was a thing and B like drew shit into the clay in Charleston what did to she motivate her? She... Remember she would draw the number of break points or match points that she had oh right or how many points left or something or something like that and into the clay and then like yeah it was nuts she was awesome and And fist pumping into the camera fist pumping into the camera that's what i remember yeah fist pumping into the camera so her family back home could see her she was that was an intense week of (laughs) she was she was kind of exhausting Uh, she didn't go out to dinner with anybody her coach she had to skype with her coach she was all alone this poor girl all alone in charleston beating serena Beating Serena, the having the week, the week of her life, and, like, no friends. It was weird. It was super bummer. And she did nothing else the rest of the year. Yeah. Ah, uh, bummer. Fair enough. I'd like to see her do well, but she was, she was fun, if, if, as I said, intense. That's us remembering when. Hopefully we'll have lots of fun stuff to remember in 2015, and we'll remember the details. So we're going to do – I had this idea last year. We didn't get to do it. So this is kind of a ridiculous idea. We're going to take a number, but we're going to do a Secret Santa remix of Take a Number. And I'm going to explain remix. how this works so that I some makes some sense to you. We're going to do more than one round of this, not just be one. We're going to do a few, like a Secret Santa office party. You know, the tours get together. They, you know, talk about their year. They relax. They drink too much at work. That one person, you know, embarrasses themselves. Well, you know, holiday party. It's fun. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick 
instead of our normal one through hundred, we're going to pick a three-digit number that is between one hundred and four hundred ninety-nine. Um, if the number is a one in the front, it's going to be an AT, and we're going to use it's going to be an ATPer giving a gift to another ATPer. If it's a two, it's an ATPer giving to WTA. Three, WTA giving to ATP, and four, WTA giving to WTA. And the second digit in the number is the giver, and the third digit is the receiver. And so we'll look at just the top tens for this, because this is an exclusive party. So sorry, all of you Alejandro Gonzalez's and whoever else has made it on Taken Number 4, this is not your day. This is for people who we actually know. Because it's, it's, as hard as it is to talk about Alejandro Gonzalez, it's even harder to imagine what he might give, you know, uh, <laughs> Yana Chapalova for Christmas. There you go. I just don't know what that would be. Here we go. So our first number between 100 and 499 is do 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 422. Oh, this is an oh, interesting situation. Okay. No, 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 this is interesting. So this, if it's the same, if it's the same gender and same number, this person is getting their self something. Okay. So, so, so what Courtney, would... <laughs> what would Maria Sharapova get herself for Christmas? Oh, it's classic. So just to make it clear to everybody, Ben, why don't you explain why Maria Sharapova so is getting herself something? 422, the 4 means WTA to WTA. The 2 is the giver. The, the second 2 is the giver. The third 2 is the receiver. So the second digit, third digit. So this is a 422. Um, I was thinking we wouldn't get any of these. I thought of it when I was thinking of the formula. That could happen. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, so we start off with a self-gift. <laughs> what does Maria give herself, Courtney? Hmm. <laughs> I think she gives herself a hug. She did. She has. So I think she's going to do it again. I think that she is going to just kind of stop and look back on the season and be like, you know what? Good job, you. Yeah. Just good job. This was this was a good season for her. It was. I mean, in, in the context. Really good. Yeah. In the context of everything that was going on with her career um, and in the context of, of a specifically her shoulder, a pretty fine, a pretty fine season for her. So yeah, I'm going to say Maria Sharapova gives herself a hug. How about you, Ben? I don't know if people have been drawing this parallel a lot, but what you just said, I was thinking Sharapova and Federer had totally parallel years. Yep. I mean, they both went with some injury concern in 2013. They both went from about seven to two in the rankings. They both had a shot at number one at the last week of the year. They were great and they really exceeded expectations. She got the one major. He came close, um, Really similar years, really good years for both. But Sharapova, I think she, I, I remember just remember Sharapova. I think it's the closest thing we have to a Gwyneth Paltrow in tennis. Yeah, and she's I mean our goop. Yeah, she so she has a sort of lifestyle edge to herself, which I find intriguing. So I think she would give herself like a gift certificate to like um, William Sonoma. Or she would, you know, the Hater's Guide to William Sonoma catalog that Drew McGarry writes yep. for Deadspin. I think she would earnestly buy something in there for herself. But, but like, because, because she can afford it. That's the main problem with the Sonoma catalog. It's the price. She doesn't care about the price. If there's something that makes cookies that are shaped like, you know, great impressionist paintings or something ridiculous. Yeah, why, why shouldn't Maria Sherpo buy that? She can earn it. She, does, she doesn't have to worry about that. I would I say think something ridiculous probably, in the Williams Sonoma catalog. Yeah, I, w- I would say that she probably shoots higher than Williams Sonoma, but okay. I get your sentiment. Okay. And I, I, the I thing is, I can't name brands higher because I am not a yeah, I was gonna of say, that I was like, social strata. It's going to be impressive how high you go here. Um, but yes, Maria what Sharapova. Is, what is a, what is is a super group. high end kitchen home, home goods thing? Like, she What's could like buy um, like an entire 
kitchen um french not one i mean they have there are many but one that i have specifically in mind that's like this french um company that makes like ovens like entire kitchen hardware like not hardware but appliances and stuff and it costs like you know twenty thirty thousand dollars to like retrofit your kitchen um but it's beautiful and it's so cute so yeah go with that there you go <laughs> Maria gets yourself something uh let's google see. it maria you're welcome <laughs> French thing, kitchen, you'll like it. Good for you. Uh, next gift. I see, you know, like, okay, anyway, let's go. Next gift. Spin the wheel. Next number is 218. 218. So it's going to be an ATP giving WTA. Uh, it means the two. The one is Novak Djokovic is giving something to the AT, to the WTA number eight, who is Carolyn Wozniacki. Exactly. That's very so, nice of Novak. They're yeah. neighbors. They know Monica each other neighbors. incredibly well. Yeah. Yeah. What does Novak give Caroline? Working on it, working on it. Okay, I have one. I have an idea. Okay. I think that Novak gives Caroline an assortment of stand-up comedy DVDs. Oh, no. Because I, cause Novak is somebody who's a really good, really purposeful entertainer on court, makes a lot of jokes, is known as the Joker or whatever. And he makes a lot of jokes. And Caroline, I think, wants to be that on some level and has a way of having her jokes miss sometimes and i think novak would just try to help her out and give her some some good source material to learn from learn what to do learn what not to do and you know maybe not dvds that's really very last decade of me but you know some medium of comedy for her to her to study and soak in okay okay that's my answer i think that novak who is we have established in our last episode incredibly good friends with all the one direction guys (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> gives Caroline Wozniacki uh, the One Direction guys' phone numbers. Yeah. Just in case. Just in case she wants to stay on the Irish route. Yeah, she she, yeah. she got that whatever selfie with the, yeah, the Irish blonde guy. Uh, What's his name? Niall. Yeah. yeah. And uh, hey, why not? So there you go. There you go. She is. Hook a neighbor up. She, she would not be able to wear her heels in that relationship either though because that guy is possibly even smaller than rory not good oh yeah he is you're right she is she is a thing for uh leprechauns yeah i guess so yeah all right next spin of the wheel two three three it's atp number three who is rafael nadal giving something to the wta number three who is simona halep okay what does rafael nadal give simona halep rafael nadal gives simona halep (laughs) <laughs> I have two on my brain. Okay. So I'm trying to decide which way to go. Um, Rafael Nadal gives Simona Halep, like, kind of a few tips and pointers on how gambling works with respect to kind of like, <laughs> you know, sometimes you have a really good hand and you try to maximize that hand. And so sometimes you, like, knock someone out of the tournament without even having to play her. Like... <laughs> <laughs> um, from his poker stars, you're saying exactly, not exactly. No, no, no. Yet. Yes, no. From his poker playing prowess, um, which is so weird still to me. Yeah, so I think that that's maybe that's one kind of you know that's one gift. If in, if he wants to give her something that's a little bit more practical and maybe a little bit more like I'm pretty sure Rafa and Simona have never spoken. I'm pretty it's sure much, yeah. that they don't know each other. So like when you don't know somebody really well and you get the secret Santa. Like, you don't want to, you can't give them something super personal. That's super weird and awkward. And over gifting is like awkward for everyone involved, particularly yeah. the giftee. So, 
um, you kind of end up get, like handing over like a tchotchke or something, right? Like here's some like random thing that has no we have no emotional connection to whatsoever. But I think that one thing Rafa could give Simona Halep that would be incredibly useful because generally you end up going towards the more practical kind of gifts mm-hmm. in these sorts of situations is the Rosetta Stone that he used to learn English. Is his English much better than hers? He's got some good vocabulary. But I want, like, Simona to retain – the whole point is I want Simona to retain the very Simona-esque halibisms okay. in the same way that Rafa has has Nadal-isms, even though his English has gotten incredibly better. Yeah. Um, I want Simona to still have the same thing. In other words, I don't want her to have, like, the true Rosetta Stone that would give her, like, super perfect English. I want her to have the Rosetta Stone that Rafa had, which – teaches you English and improves your vocabulary and allows you to communicate um, better uh, while still being true to yourself and saying just things like, I need to keep my brain on the floor. <laughs> there you it's go. It's awesome. I, it is pretty good. I think that Rafa should give Simona the name, I'm not sure this person exists, but the name of his real estate agent in Paris who sets him up with lodgings for his long stays at Roland Garros. Because I think she's going to be making a lot of long stays at Roland Garros too. I like think it. she is the person who is going to be the closest thing to a dominant clay quarter uh, over the next eight years. I mean, she's the closest thing we're gonna, I think we're going to have to a W. Tana doll uh, since Justin Ennen in this short term, unless some junior comes along and absolutely kills it on clay. I'm not sure who that would be. Or, or Clay Pova just keeps doing what she do. <sighs> I can't. I still can't process Clay Pova. <laughs> uh, but Pona, I think, can be set up to be. At her best at the French, and as Nadal is the really owns that place, I think he should uh, give her a little bit of lay of the land. There you go. That's that's cool. that's what I have for that. Good call. It's not a great present to get somebody a phone number, but you know, it's something. It's it's, it's thoughtful. Next number one three one. So oh, this is this is Rafa again, giving something to Novak. Hmm. Is it wrong if I say appendicitis? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll just say it. Appendicitis. There you go. Yeah. Um, I think Rafa would give Novak... Uh, oh, yeah. It's hard not to think of this as some competitive zone with how with rivalry they have. Oh, a French Open trophy. There you go. Yeah. Yep. He has so many to spare, and, and Novak needs one. Just give him one of the replicas. And imagine if he, like, opened it, how awkward that would be for both of For everybody. <laughs> Because, I mean, Rafa has nine. He's like, here, I don't need this. I know you want it. Take it. Oh. And we're making Rafa into be a much more evil person than we I We really think. are. We really are. But it would be amusing. If this was like a Mean Girls type screenplay, Rafa would absolutely do that. So there you go. One more. 386. This is Wozniacki giving something to the ATP number six, who is Andy Murray. What does Caroline Wozniacki give Andy Murray? Wozniacki gives to Andy Murray her login information for Seamless. Okay, explain. Okay. So Andy Murray the other day sent out a tweet asking people if there was delivery, a good delivery place in the Brickle area of Key Biscayne, Miami. And Waz wrote back and said, why don't you just use Seamless, which is an app um, or website. I think it's actually an app. No, it's also a website, website slash app uh, that allows you to do delivery. And in most big cities, it's like the best. If you have Seamless in New York City, it's the bomb. Um, 
And yeah, so she suggested it to him. So that's what I would say is that just give him your login and password, Caroline. It'll help guide him through the process. Boy needs to eat his, his food. There you go. That's really good. I have a mean answer. But I'll say, I think she probably has a lot of like spare wedding planning materials. Oh, that's so good. That's a good call. Yeah. Yeah. Hand me down. I don't need these. Take them. Yeah. yeah. There you go. That's, that's where they are. Both are at life right now. So yeah. that's my answer. Uh, another one, 371. So this is the WTA number seven, who is Bouchard. Jeannie Bouchard giving something to Novak Djokovic. Mm. So Novak's getting all the gifts here. What does he get from Jeannie? What does Jeannie have to give? That's what I mean. If anything, Novak should be giving Jeannie a coach because he has two and she has zero. (laughs) Exactly. A stuffed animal? Oh, that's good. (laughs) She does have a lot of stuffed animals. Yeah. And I say it, I mean, there is is logic to what I'm saying. Simply because, again, going back to my kind of Simona... Uh, Rafa situation like I don't think these two are like bestest of buddies yeah um, maybe that will change now that Jeannie's kind of under the whole IMG-ish umbrella and they're kind of in the same circle at least somewhat from a marketing perspective but yeah so like you don't really go out of your way a ton to like buy this person a present that you've been given Secret Santa to yeah. so she has tons of stuffed animals he's got a kid that's what I was gonna say he has a baby so it makes sense so yeah. a stuffed animal there you go. That's like the answer. one that you don't one that you don't really like all that much. <laughs> or one you do. I mean, or one you do. Sure, uh, okay. They my answer, that's a really good one. I'm gonna say she gives him um part of her fan club. Because you know how he needs the crowd on his side. He wants the crowd on his side more often. She has these people who follow her around to throw her animals. How much would Novak like someone to be in the sand to throw him a stuffed animal? Aww. That would that would mean more than getting one to him, I think, to have fan adulation. I think Jeannie has some of that to spare. Oh. So there we go. Okay. That's my answer for that one. Next gift, 360. So that is the ATP number six. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry, WTA number six, who is, a, who is um, who's number six? Aga. Uh, Aga, giving something to the w, ATP number 10, who is <laughs> Ferrer. <laughs> <laughs> what does Aga give Ferrer? Okay, I know, I know what she gives him. I think she gives him, like, a book of trick shots. Yeah, some flair. I, some flair. Aga has so much more. And I think Ferrer can do all these things. He just kind of plays this intentionally uh, rhythmic wear you down, break you down through repetition style. And I think that with Aga uh, giving him a, a few pointers here and there, he could be a much, much more fun player to watch. I mean, she it, the... the you know, we call it, it, you've said it, the shot of the year award is going to be handed to her someday. Mm-hmm. Ferrer doesn't have any of those shots and can do them and should do them. So that's what I think. Totally a good call. I'm going to go with cheesecake. Because <laughs> I really feel like with David Ferrer, this was not a good, this was this was a tough year for, for David. Not great. Um, He kind of really teetered on relevance, which is already saying a lot because irrelevant yeah just because he wasn't incredibly relevant before i mean he was insofar as like you know ranking wise ranking wise but you never really felt like he was a threat at the majors but you knew that he was you know would could potentially he's a tough out you know and it just felt like this year he was he was he wasn't as tough of an out um which was kind of a bummer so i think that he needs to have a nice and chill off season he needs to put his racket away take a deep breath 
and eat some cheesecake. Enjoy life, David. It's it's not all it's not all hard. There you go. Sometimes you just gotta stop and eat a chair of bowlies. There you go. <laughs> Next one, one twenty eight, is what Federer gives Milos Ronich. A return of serve. <laughs> yes. I mean obviously. Like not that Federer not the Federer would want Milos to be able to return, because that'd be scary for Federer. It would be, but at the same time, Fed's that guy. He's yeah. like, here, I'm going to give you my return of serve, and I'm still going to figure out a way to beat you. Yeah. Because still you still don't have a backhand. Yeah, fair. So, yeah, I'm going to say return of serve. That's pretty easy. I, hmm, I'll i say he gives Milos... Oh, easy. He gives him, similar to other name answers, he gives him the name of his barber. I mean, Federer was known for having, like, immaculate hair during his hate or i guess most of his peak at you know oh five six seven whatever after the ponytail days having this like immovable but like bouncy light fluffy perfect hair and ronich has gone so far the other way in terms of locking that situation down i think federer could take him aside and be like milos there's another way yeah it doesn't have to be so tense no don't you isn't that interesting though that it kind of like actually their hairstyles suit them yeah like, Roger's just kind of, like, free-flowing, like, whatever, dude. Like, I woke up like this. And Milos is like, I constructed all of this. I wear this sleeve intentionally. I but, work you know, so hard I this. work so hard at everything. And I'm just seething with, like, rage underneath the surface about all of it. And my hair and the gel and high and tight and everything's under control. It's like, oh, man, just let it go, dude. Let it go. Let it go. Next, okay, one, one, five. So that is what... Djokovic gives Kaney Shikori. Hmm. Well, it'd be lame if he gave him some unique low. That'd be pretty lame. That'd be like, dude, come on. You know for a fact I have this. I think that Kaney Shikori, that Novak Djokovic would give Kaney Shikori a copy of his book, Serve to Win, with a note Hmm. saying, you should really rethink the noodles thing, kid. (laughs) It's not good. No, but I mean, along those lines, I, I would, I think that Novak Djokovic does give to Kaney Shikori whether it's in his book or whether it's through just conversation, like here, I'll give you 30 minutes to talk to me, like whatever. But like Novak transformed himself from like the most fragile man yeah, to being tennis's Iron Man. Like let's figure out how to get Kaney Shikori there. Because Kaney Shikori is not iron. He is not iron. He He's is a very iron. soft metal. He's a soft metal. He's very pliable. He's like that spoon that you have in your cupboard that, like, you don't think about and you try and scoop ice cream with it and it bends. Yeah. He's that spoon. Be the ice cream, not the spoon, Kay. For reals. Yeah. Yeah, So I'm going to go with that. There you go. Give him a spoon hardener. Yeah. Uh, Let's do one more. Okay. Last one, 372, what Jeannie gives Roger. I will say two free hours of babysitting. Oh, that's good. Now, whether Roger wants to take that deal, that's up to him. But I know that Jeannie Bouchard is an incredibly ginormous Roger Federer fan. She like, is. He is her favorite. Um, so I'm pretty sure she would try and, like, she would, like, you know, endeavor to do a super good job babysitting. So she wouldn't be, like, hopefully on her phone, on the couch, you know, watching, uh, I don't know, like, uh, American Hustle. Uh, or Wolf of Wall Street. Sure. As the kids are, you know, playing with the utensil drawer in the back. So, yeah, I think she'd try hard and and do good. That's Um, tough. All four kids? Hey, babysitting's babysitting. It's tough. Maybe she can invite over one of her friends to help. 
Oh, wait. Um, okay, ha- maybe I think that she could give Roger... Um, more stuffed animals also. <laughs> more stuffed animals also. I think she could give him... Yeah, obviously. I think she could give him a selfie stick. Because I feel like... Which is the only way I think of making selfies an object. I feel like Jeannie... As much as I think it's annoying when, like, her nickname is the Selfie Queen. Like, no one actually calls her that. That's a ridiculous way to open an article. Um, but You opened an article with that. I've heard people say it in, in, in their first paragraphs of articles about Jeannie. It's like... She's the know. Selfie Queen? I think I saw that somewhere. Maybe that I just, is a really maybe, terrible maybe, thing. Maybe I just didn't. Let me Google this, see if it's actually a real thing somebody said. <laughs> I don't know what this article is, but from the website kpopstars.com... Headline, Selfie Queen Eugenie Bouchard and her many men. What? Photos, photos, with, photos with Big Bang Theory actor Jim Parsons, Owen Wilson, Grigor Dimitrov, but no Laura Robson. That is one of the longest and most remarkable headlines I've read in quite a while. Good for you, K-pop stars with a Z.com. Wow. Okay. I'm going to say selfie stick. Because I okay. feel like Roger tries selfies, but his aren't usually that good. They're just sort of funny that it's Roger taking a selfie. <laughs> But then how do you mesh that with, like, Maria Sharapovi's tweet about selfie sticks, which is selfie sticks are not, shouldn't be happening because they, people in Japan don't use them and people in Japan are trendsetters. So yeah. everybody let the selfie stick die. Here's the thing. I think as much as I'm willing to believe that Jeannie really looks to Maria as a sort of role model, as a sort of she blazed a trail of what she did, I also know that Jeannie Bouchard has remained a steadfast Justin Bieber fan. And kind of doesn't care what's supposed to be cool or not cool. She kind of doesn't give a shit. Fair enough. About that. So I think that she wouldn't mind. If she's something that she thinks is cool, I think she's enough of her own person. And I'd say that's a total compliment. I think yeah. she's enough of her own independent thinker that if Marie doesn't like it, whatever. I still like my selfie stick. It's pretty cool. I think it's great. Fair enough. So there you go. You're right. She has held steadfastly to her love of the Bieber in the face of a remarkable amount of questioning. Counter- and-, <laughs> and counter evidence. Yeah. yeah so. There you go. So that is the Christmas party. Sorry to everybody who didn't get a gift or didn't get to play. Better luck next year. Santa must have brought you coal. Um, Anjali Kerber. <laughs> That's just sad. Sad. So thank you guys very much for listening to this episode of the show. We are going to continue after the outro with our discussion of the serial podcast which just ended uh, earlier this week with episode 12 finally so we're going to talk about that we both were ardent listeners of it and talked a bunch offline but we thought we know a lot of you are listeners as well we actually got a couple questions about serial in our mailbag um, so we're going to talk about the show after the outro but we want to put it there so if you don't want to get spoilers or just don't care you can hang up and not listen to this show anymore but in the meantime, thanks for following us other ways, which will be serial spoiler free on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. And we will see you guys next time in 2015. Happy Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year, listeners. Have a good one. And Kwanzaa, Boxing Day. Anything else coming up? Mm. Various college bowl games. Exactly. Happy bowl season, y'all. Bowl season. Yay. And see you on the flip. Previously on No Challenges Remaining. Yeah, I'll put some. Brink, 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 brink. Mail. Came.
cereal but just so you hear a different voice we want to reaffirm our sort of spoiler warning if you have any interest in listening to uh cereal if you haven't yet or you think you might want to someday uh this conversation probably will take some of the fun out of it for you so you can come back and listen once you're done uh but for now courtney we probably agree probably best to make this a necessary affirmative consent listening Yes. <laughs> Affirmative and enthusiastic consent, please, to listen to our spoilery uh, serial excerpt. And also just so that I don't want to assume that everybody knows what serial is. Uh, it's a podcast done by NPR. Well, yeah, it's done by NPR. Yep. Um the, the folks that do This American Life, which is an incredible kind of groundbreaking podcast in and of itself or show um, on NPR that was tra- turned into a podcast. And so they started this 12 episode series, serialized series uh, following the host, Sarah Koenig's investigation into this murder in 1999 of this woman, a uh, young woman, teenager, uh, Heyman Lee. Um, and the in Baltimore. Uh, in Baltimore and the subsequent conviction of her ex-boyfriend Adnan Syed, um, who is now serving time for strangling her and uh, whether or not. And so basically Sarah Koenig goes in, investigates the whole thing to see, like, did this guy really do it or not? So that's the show. So if you don't want to listen to it or you want to listen to this podcast first and then come back to listen to ours, do that now. Don't listen any further. But otherwise, Ben, you've listened to all 12. I've listened to all 12. Go, buddy. Did Adnan do it? (laughs) Let's start with that. Um, Did Adnan do it? I say, let's just get a one-word answer to each of this from both of us. Okay. Did Adnan do it? I say yes. Courtney? I say yes. There we go. So that show over. No, but not really. (laughs) Um, But But it's so complicated. It's so complicated. It's so complicated beyond that. Um, Yeah, I really like just to go right to the finale. Um, And we talk more about Serial and what sort of meant as a podcast form because it really was a revolutionary uh crossover hit podcast i mean podcast as much as we are on one right now and have made over 100 episodes of this show and our other previous podcasts i did before this we're kind of podcast veterans in this relatively new genre of, of entertainment and media it was a total just the idea of serializing the show itself was really remarkably surprising that no one had done that that I, that I know of totally. on this sort of scale but to get to the more verdict side we can talk about the impact of the show at the end i think that what the producer i forget which one it was on the last episode said was totally right like if adnan yeah. didn't do it then he got ridiculously unlucky with so many things which for me given the facts we know go i think beyond i don't know reasonable doubt is is subjective like a hall of fame vote but otherwise pretty much i mean basically we know he was with jay that day we know jay knew where the car was of hay's car so hey jay had something to do with it and we know that they had recently broken up and they're all the things i'm not super worried about motive or the parts of the show that i didn't like were the parts that veered into that's not the adnan i knew I don't. I know Adnan. I'm not sure he could do that. That's what I thought was all pretty. And maybe that's just me. I don't know if that's me being a guy not really into that stuff. I'm just a little more whatever, not swayed by the purely emotional sort of argument of that. I don't know. I I just thought that when the facts came together, Jay knew what was up. Jay was with Adnan. Adnan had some sort of motive. Jay had no motive. 
easiest explanation by far, without getting too nutty, is that Adnan did it. And the parts about the timeline from Jay being blurred, whatever. I think, overall, the evidence is there. Which is not much physical evidence at all, in fairness to Adnan. And whether or not he should have been convicted is a different situation. But do I think he's the most likely person to have done it? By far. Yeah, I mean, I think that the last thing that you said is what I really, when I say it's complicated, it's complicated. Because the weird thing is, okay, whether somebody, like, the bottom line, the answer that we all want to get to at the end of this the show is is did this guy do x right it's a binary thing yes or no there is no maybe i'm not sure it's yes or no the weird thing though is that within the the criminal justice system that's actually not the 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 analysis the analysis is whether or not there is reasonable doubt and if there is then you cannot convict him so to me i was stuck in this weird once the show ended and i thought about it i was like i was stuck in this weird world where i was like if i was on that jury i would not have voted guilty Mm -hmm. but if you ask me do i think that he did it i say yes yeah and so it's this weird thing where it's like you're being asked to make like a binary you know decision in a non-binary kind of world like you know there's all these gradations but or flip that but um yeah i kind of agreed with with the same thing that you know there there would have to be a lot of things that went incredibly against adnan for him not to have done it or at least have to have been involved been involved in some way i think the biggest thing is like i know the 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 the, the last episode kind of focuses in on that guy who's now dead was a serial rapist murderer both i think both Dabble, yeah dabbled in both yeah yeah um robert lee moore i want to say was his name but i could be wrong um but yeah like that oh well the innocence project is now filing a petition to to get the the dna tested and maybe it's him and obviously if it is then that exonerates oh, yeah. uh, Adnan ma- massively, but immediately. yeah, and immediately. But um, the the fact that Jay knew everything, because I, the whole time the show was going on, I was like, no, what if this is just a completely random murder? Yeah, like it and was the, the guy who found the body who did it, right? Like, like yeah. the streaker guy. But like the fact that Jay knew everything eliminated all that. Like it couldn't somehow Jay became the nexus. So therefore the next analysis was, okay, well, he's obviously the one that's pinning everything on Adnan. He's the main witness without Jay. Adnan isn't in jail. So is, is he credible at all? You know? And I, and I found him to be, because I think that at the end of the day, the story that he told and the facts that he knew, there was no other way to know it unless he did it. But like for him to do it and then blame it on Adnan and get away with it, he would have to be the criminal mastermind. And I don't really see that happening. And he would also have to have a motive and the motives that we've, I've heard. And there was one on this, on the serial uh, spoiler special, but it was the week, the off week of the show where they talked about on slate, um, on slate, right. On, uh, slate spoiler special on serial. It's a lot of S's is that maybe Hey knew that Jay had been cheating on his girlfriend. Stephanie was going to confront him about it, and then Jay killed her to keep her quiet. That seems like a, a kind of a, a real overreaction from Jay to suddenly kill someone because she might tell your girlfriend you're cheating on her. That seems right. like a big overstep in terms of reaction to that. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I will say I will lay out kind of like all of my reservations, which are very massive. Go for it. Like, because I for it. I did feel like at the end the exact same way that Sarah Koenig did, and I thought that she did a incredibly masterful job with that last episode um because that could have gone really badly um it was an incredibly high bar that she was going to have to clear and i think that she did but uh, because i think that she she stayed honest to her reporting um and to her journalism you know background um but i felt the same way which is that like i can't tell you that 
100% one way or the other, but, you know, there is a part of me that stops me from thinking that, you know, he's either innocent or guilty. And so for me, there's a few things. One was, um, I don't know, like to, to strangle someone to death is like a very different thing to me than like shooting somebody or, or stabbing somebody or pushing someone off a cliff. Like the, the latter three can be incredibly impulsive and you immediately regret it. But obviously they happen so quickly and instinctively that you can't stop it. Whereas like to strangle somebody that's like, takes an incredible amount of, of, of just sustained strength and thought. And it's not easy. Don't believe the things that you see like on TV. Like it takes like, it's a very cruel thing um, to do. And, and, and you're you face s- to face with the person when you do it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so I just was like, what in the world could this kid have been so mad about that he strangled her? And that's where the question of motive did matter to me. And that's where it really bothered me that I couldn't, like, that, that one was never presented or that seemed like, like that could amount to the level of or could be as big as something that would cause the rage to do something like that. I I have a big problem with wasn't, that. Wasn't there that letter though that was found in her room that was like a note from her saying like you need to get over like, you know, get over it essentially. Sure. Which, and and then he wrote like on the top like, you know, I'm going to kill her or something. Yeah, something but ridiculous. like come on, like just but, like no, what we were talking about at the beginning of the Even the, if that's too ridiculous to dismiss, it still apparently happened. Oh, come on. No, I t- I completely and thoroughly dismiss it you don't like, you don't think that letter existed or what if you are a guy if you're somebody who's going to be like this criminal mastermind who plots this murder and like somehow like like tries to figure out like oh i'm gonna try and get away with it or something like you don't write that down i just don't think that like i don't know like that i don't know if he was a criminal mastermind though i don't think he necessarily was I think that he's a complete and utter sociopath if he thinks – well, we'll set that aside because there was a whole discussion about throwing around that word. But I think for him to be the way that he was with Sarah Koenig for such a long time through all these interviews and to, like, put forth this face and obviously we hear his voice. Like, he does – he sounds like an innocent guy. Like, the way that he talks and the way that he's kind of handling it, he sounds innocent. Like, there isn't really – and I do trust Sarah Koenig that she doesn't get, like, snowed by this guy. Like, in terms of, like, just be like ignoring red flags or something like that. So, you know, you know that there's hours of tape that's on the cutting room floor that we've never heard. And I don't think I, – I don't know. I do trust her as a narrator. Yeah, I do. But I'm not sure – and I read an article about a, a, one of the billions of think pieces that was written about this. So many. So many think pieces. Um was written about this show was um, a pretty critical of Sarah in terms of not really like for the letter. I think was one of the examples is why I kind of had it in my mind because I read it after I watched listened to the last episode. Um, was not really pressing Adnan on a lot of things, like not really being hard hitting. And this is part of what made the show so interesting. It's the protagonist of the show was not Adnan. It was not definitely was not Hay. It was Sarah Koenig, and it was all about her. She's the storyteller. Journey. Yeah, she's but but she was it was first person. I mean, it was very much her going through this case and her journey uncovering it. Um, and she had this very disarming, you know, conversational, you know, warts and all way of showing her journalism path through, which I think was really really illuminating and really instructive for how you should go through it, how you should chase down every rabbit hole, every lead, be thorough, 
get the building blueprints from 1994 of the Best Buy to see if there was a payphone in the vestibule. I mean, that whole Go through thing. entire lawsuits uh, back in 1999 to find yeah. a contract, the AT&T user, agreement, user yeah. agreement, to figure out whether or not a call is log and charge for. Charged for. I mean, it's incredible. And, and I think in that way, that's why I do – because, look, you and I have both been in situations where, okay, we report something, a story, where yeah. we go and interview a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Not every single freaking quote and question Q and A is included in that reportage. There are Almost decisions never, that yeah. are made, and there are sometimes somebody will say something, and you're like, "I don't know, man. Come on." Like you know what I mean? Like just because you said it doesn't mean that I print it, and vice versa, right? Like there t- there is some sort of subjective uh, decision. I mean, decision making that goes involved in kind of how you craft it. Now, somebody might read then your story. Like let's say somebody reads like your ITF story that you wrote for the New York Times, right? Okay. Yeah. And read something and it's like, yeah, but what about this? Like, I can't believe like Rothenberg didn't ask like, you know, Buderak about this and like why didn't you know? And it's like, but maybe I did, maybe I didn't, but that has nothing to do with like, like I think that Sarah Koenig has like, with all the. Uh, 12- I'm sure. Th- I'm sure the show could be 24 episodes with the stuff she has. I'm sure she has more. Right. Like, and so I just don't think like maybe, I think that so much of it does depend on whether or not you trust her as a narrator. I think, I that, and her, I think that I that's a, a very. I do. Yeah, well, sure. So I think that, like that thing about the that you know she dismisses the 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 that little note. I think you know the whole Mister S the streaker guy. Now it doesn't really get much play, which seemed like really surprising in the first like half of the series. Um, you know, a couple of like different things, like like Gutierrez. Like I'm always really surprised. Like why? Did, I'm sure she that Sarah Koenig. Yeah, and I know. I mean, you have to think that Sarah Koenig knows exactly why. Sarah Gutierrez, like, why uh, Christina Gutierrez was, like, going through shit at the time. Like, you know what I mean? And she never really, really drills down on it. And you sit there and you're like, for me, yeah. yeah. So, but so, I, just, I just think that Sarah, because she was the narrator, and I think, obviously, the fact that I got this, in, we all got this into a podcast is a huge testament to her and what a good job she did and her staff and her producers and everything. So, overall, absolutely, she did an amazing job. But I do think there were times where she just could have been harder edged with some of these questions or pursuits or not seemingly, you know, given into the whole, cause she's just sort of just as a reporter or as a listener who wanted to get to the bottom of the story was in, you know, really entranced by it. Uh, just her being like, I don't know. And I didn't know, but like you could have asked but, something else. But the, ba- is, the, the one basic question point. I wanted, the one basic question I wanted to hear is, I don't think she ever asked Adnan directly, do you think Jay did it? Like, what does Adnan think happened? Adnan must, if Adnan... That's judged, totally fair. It, that's totally fair. That's did, a fair critique. What does Adnan think happened? He, but, and as far as we know, we never got that. And that's re- amazing to me. Well, that and that's totally fair. And uh, and there may have been... Yeah, but I'm saying that, like, just because in terms of, like, your first original criticism, like, oh, when she's like, oh, I don't know. I just, I'm just thinking out loud. I'm just spitballing with you, Adnan. I like that, though. Yeah, I, I understand that. But I'm, but I'm saying is that – but you don't know if like in the course of 40 hours of talking to this guy on the phone that she didn't ask that question again or ask it again. Like there are different ways of trying to like break somebody's story down. Not every, not everything is like I asked it once. He didn't say anything, so I never asked it again. Like but we don't know. But what is she – like what in terms of like producing everything into a package of cereal, this podcast we're all supposed to listen to and be compelled by – is like the call. Do you lay everything out in incredible detail to the point that it's completely unusable? 
and unlisten and, and unlistenable. Like you know what I mean? Like no, every no, detail. A, that's a huge amount of editing that goes into it. I totally get that. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is that like? But I'm saying. But then the flip side of it is also, who knows if it's a male reporter who's like super hard edge and wants to go in there, like you know. And obviously, Koenig is a little bit softer in the way that she does things. If it's like. Maybe Adnan never or like agrees Nancy to, Grace or somebody. Doing right, it, and yeah. maybe Adnan never agrees to in the first place. Maybe he's yeah. never as open as he ends up being. I mean, these That's are all the things that like go into it, and I think that I don't know. I no, I'm definitely I, much more. I I'm much more of a Koenig defender in the way that she went about it than I think I've seen a lot of kind of the weird like serial backlash pieces, which I don't really I understand from a like intellectual conceptual level, but I I'm like, nah, no, I don't buy I really it. and I really was trying to hedge there. I do think that almost entirely what Sarah put together was remarkable and really, really impressive and her thoroughness and her and her tone was disarming and she was approachable and it's one of those things where she because she was so open and really relatively no uh what's the word for it? There was no, you know, pretense of well, I'm the the host and the journalist here, and I think this or whatever. It was very uh, relatable and whatever else. It was it was kind of you felt like you got to know her during the show a lot, and all of that I think was effective in making the story come to life and making it seem like a much more human endeavor. There were just a few times where I was like, "Come on, you should just be a little bit harder here because you have the person sort of lined up or this question lined up in your crosshairs, and it looks like you're not pulling the trigger." But overall, those were moments relatively few and far between it was overall a very very great endeavor yeah yeah <laughs> so what do you what do you think i know you've talked before on the show about how much you like podcasts like how does serial change the game completely are we going to see more shows like this are we going to see a tennis serial and if so what the fuck would that be what 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 is what does serial mean how, how did it change the the game because Speaking of Hall of Fame votes, Serial is obviously a first ballot Hall of Fame podcast already. Oh, for sure. Um, I don't know. Um, I think that you need more data points to see if this is lightning in the bottle or not. And, you know, because there are kind of like serialized podcasts insofar as they're fiction. Yeah. You know, there are podcasts that are basically like radio shows, right? You tune in, you download them, you listen, and, you know, you have to listen to the last one before you listen to the next one. So that, as a concept, has existed. But doing it in a in a nonfiction reporting format um, hasn't really. Um, I think it's difficult. I mean, this case was perfect for it. Um, there were so many different storylines going on, so many different layers, so many different ways you could take it. Um, this cultural al- elements. Too, yeah, yeah, this also took over a year this full investigation that sarah koenig did so there's that aspect of it um you know so if you're npr what you is this going to be like a tv show you like you put it out once a year or is this like do you try and line it up to where like okay this serial's done and next week we start a new thing that's been already you know we've had leave you know head um you know a head start on that's been working alongside this with a different team and crew. I don't know. I mean, all that's like, those are the questions to ask. Um, I, I think it's great. I think that though it really did have a lot to do with the case. Yeah. And Sarah Koenig specifically, and not just like, Oh, here's this whole, like the whole concept of people being like, what the fuck's a podcast ever since like Sarah, I'm like, seriously, like I haven't listened to this podcast since like 2007, like 2006, 2005. Like it's, It's not, this is not new to me, but, um, so it didn't feel so crazy groundbreaking, but, um, I don't, I, I'm looking forward to see what they do next, but I would be 
I wouldn't be surprised to see like a bunch of people try and emulate it and it fail. How can you not? I mean, but it was a unique situation where the story was just the right amount of uh, incredibly amount of murky. You could, and you could also make it murkier if you wanted to. I mean, I do think there were times when, and then when I talk about it, is Adon guilty or not? Every time the conversation goes back to, but Jay knew, you know, every three minutes. Mm-hmm. And this show absolutely did not do that. It was not, it was really meandering, but in a way that was good. It painted a much fuller picture. So that way, that case was good. And also Sarah was obviously just an incredibly talented storyteller and host and personality and presence for this. So it was a perfect confluence of things. I'm not sure it'll be easy to, to replicate, but I hope so. That The last last thing was another debate. Do you think it was, you know, okay or too macabre or whatever for there to be this pop culture obsession over a murdered teenage girl? I don't. Yeah. At all, weirdly. And um, this is my – I mean, I think that obviously some people could take it a little too far and like kind of be like a little too gleeful um, with respect to, 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 to the show or something or their investigation. I can understand how that could be really off-putting. But like how different is it than like reading a long-form piece or a book, like reading In True Blood and being like, dude, you got to read this. It is an incredible piece of writing – um, yeah. it's so interesting. The characters are just, and you'd say characters, but you're like, no, but actually it's really real people. In cold um, blood, you mean, right? Yeah. Yeah. In cold blood. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I had Truman in my head. So, so <laughs> I was like in true blood. Um, yeah. So and enjoying reading it. Like, yes, it involves a murder and it's involves like a really, really sad and tragic event, but you can still take be intrigued by it and learn something from it and be enriched by it. And in that enrichment, enjoy have a good time i guess yeah um so no i didn't i i felt like that was a bit of a harsh knee-jerk criticism i I agree with that and i think that also it's not you know disturbing the dead it's not like a you know unearthing her grave or her memory or the scars whatever because adnan is still alive and in prison i mean the story really was remarkably little about hay um in this whole thing um, which never they yeah, they never with the exception of Adnan they never really got into I, maybe I don't remember the, the family wasn't well. no but the family the family wasn't involved but they yeah. never got into like what could he have done to make someone want to kill her you know did she have enemies out there was she ever you know mean to people or did she ever you know do any wrong to anyone I don't know the story was mostly through Adnan Adnan's voice would come in the show like every 10 15 minutes well but then again like if you wanted to take it that route that starts to become like really weirdly like that could have that would have gone so badly yeah if no, you I started agree. to I devote agree. like an entire episode to like her it's like what did she do to deserve this that's like the immediate like oh no yeah you, you know what i'm saying like no this is not putting it's this is about putting him on trial not her no, and um and that would i would have an issue with that that that's was fair. where i'd be like no 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 you cannot do that um, especially if the family's not taking part. Now, that's a weird question, though, because as a journalist, if you're reporting the story, of course you ask those questions. Yeah. Of course you chase that down. But then in, in your final product, do you present it unless there's something there? No, but you wouldn't, like, present it just as a salacious, like, now let's get into, like, Heyman Lee's background, like, you know, and what her life was like. It's like, yeah. you know, here's the stuff that's in the public record. Here's her diary. I read some of it to you. I talked to her friends. Everybody seemed to love her. And you trust that, that that's that's about it. That you know, unless there was something negative, truly negative to like present, you would never present it. Yeah. So there you go. 
season two is coming out in 2015. We don't know when exactly. Um, maybe it'll be another fall thing, like a TV show. I don't know. There's a whole pretty uncharted. Even just having a season of a of a podcast, as far as I know, I can't remember that ever happening. Has that happened? A, a season of... of a podcast? Oh, that ends. Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. I don't. I think can't so. really think of it. I don't think. I was so. thinking when I was saying this would be our last show of the year. I was like, oh well, Serial had a season finale, so why can't we? Um, yeah, I don't know. So it's interesting. What do you think it should be? Another true crime thing or can, can no. it be something so much lower stakes somehow it needs to be something different i think that for the good of the show and its longevity mm-hmm. it needs to be something different because it needs to show that it can do different things i mean you yeah. need to show that um yeah and also you also just don't want to like pigeonhole right. um and kind of um limit the number of interesting stories you can tell yeah. with this format and obviously they have now done it they're the first to do it they have a head start they have a good sense of like how to pull it off and so and i think that like 12 episodes is perfect i hope they don't expand that to more i think that's too much but um if anything you make it smaller like yeah, yeah exactly exactly so so yeah um i think that's i think that's tougher i mean i th- i doubt uh, there was a sh- episode there was a show called a, uh, there is a podcast called strangers um, and the host, Leah Taub, um, did this, she, it's normally about a bunch of different stuff, but like for three episodes, which it ended up being kind of serialized, but I guess they were kind of standalone too. So maybe not. She basically like decided like, I'm going to investigate why, like, I'm going to go and interview guys who've broken up with me or that like I've broken up with, or like I met online and we went out on a date and like, they never called me back and like ask them why. Because, like, she's single and she's dealing with, like, whatever. But it was, yeah. like, kind of... So it's been kind of done, like... But it was, like, episodes. Like, distinct episodes. They were all game for this? Not all of them, but the ones who did were. Okay. Yeah. No, it was interesting. There you go. But in the meantime, thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Later! This is a Global Tell Link prepaid call from... Adnan Sayed. An inmate at a Maryland Correctional Facility. About Learjets and coops, the way salt shoots and how to sell records like Snoop. I'm interrupted by a doorbell. 352. Who the hell is this? I get up quick, cops my shit. Stop the dogs from barking, then proceed to walk.